and welcome to another episode of We Have Such Films to Show You. Uh, this is episode 39 where we're talking about Cronenberg's 1986 uh, film The Fly with Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. Uh, I am Josh Millard, one of your host-type beings. And I'm Yaakov, and I'm now regretting not practicing a Jeff Goldblum uh, impression for this podcast. Uh, Very uh, much regretting it. Yeah, well, it's a subtle thing, Jeff Goldblum. He's, you know, it, it feels like... I feel like it's harder to do a Jeff Goldblum than it is to do some of the other obvious impressions to do, even though he's got such a specific sort of characteristic sort of style. Like, you would recognize a, jo- a good Jeff Goldblum mm-hmm. interpretation. Uh, would you easily. recognize it over the radio without, like, the hand expressions and, it like, was good. The- if it was good. I, I, think, I think there's a lot specifically to his vocal pacing and ticks and whatnot that would come through if it's being done well. Like, I would definitely recognize him talking without seeing him. So someone doing a decent impression would, but I think it's harder to identify what those things are and produce them reliably. Like, like with Shatner, you can get away with the laziest thing, partly because doing bad Shatner impressions is like such an understood thing in its own right. But like, yeah. you can just say Spock, I, and boom, you're done. Like, you don't have to do anything that has any merit. You just have to say Spock and then pause and then say another word. Or just Rocket Man in like the oddest, most unmusical <laughs> cadence you can. Rocket Man. Everybody'll know what it is. I, actually, I just watched Star Trek Generations the other night. Um, nice. Yeah, that movie is just William Shatner knowing that he's not going to be doing any more of these. <laughs> Did you ever see uh, the Captains? Uh, that was a, a, a sort of documentary series of conversations with various Star Trek captains hosted by William Shatner. I have not. Uh, oh, God, I don't know whether or not to recommend it. Like, I, what I want to do is recommend just the portions of it that Avery Brooks is in because, like, Avery- he's, he, he played Cisco. Right. And, and he's the one person in there who seems to be willing to just come back at Shatner with, like, aggressive weirdness rather than sort of <laughs> politely chuckle along with what is clearly a weird vanity project. <laughs> so, like, you know, Janeway is, like, she's trying to be sort of playful and say, well, you tell me, Bill, you know, and and uh, Bacula's polite. And, and, but, but, but Avery Brooks, uh, Cisco, Cisco was, like, a, the weirdest captain for sure. Of all them, and it turns out partly that's just because Avery Brooks just showed up. Like he's just he's 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 an odd guy, uh, and it's great. So he's like sitting at his piano, and Shatner's like trying to like goal him into some sort of vague I don't even remember what, but some sort of self indulgent Shatner esque line of discussion, and Avery just like starts singing him a song back at him of nonsense <laughs> while playing the piano, and it's just like yes, this is what this should be. This should have been an hour and a half of this instead of Bill Shatner mostly. Uh, forcing other people to be polite and run along with his dumb, ill-thought-out discussion about how great he was as Kirk. Um, it's weird. It's a weird <laughs> fucking thing. Like, I was really let down when I saw it because I thought it was going to be a really interesting, like, exploration yeah, I mean, when, of a bunch of When you of different- hear William Shatner Vanity Project film, that, that, that well, does sound like is, it could I, be really good. I hadn't realized it was... I hadn't realized it was so much a Shatner vanity thing. Like, I, I was under the impression that someone decided, you know what we should do? We should talk to all of the captains from Star Trek. I didn't realize it was Shatner saying, you know what I should do? I should interview all the other captains from Star Trek about me being the captain from – you know, it, it just – yeah, it was disappointing. It was it was just a weird, hard-to-watch kind of mess of, of awkwardness. Uh, so I highly recommend it. Um, yeah. Anyway, what were we talking about? 
Vincent Price's The Fly. Yes, yes. 1958 classic. Uh, I've never actually seen the Vincent Price one. I have uh, not either. Is that where like the help me thing is from I, that everybody always associates with the fly? Because it's, it's not this movie. I, yeah, I, I think maybe so. But uh, again, I haven't seen it. So, uh, so I really don't know. But speaking of things where things came from, the phrase, be afraid, be very afraid, appears in this film. And it's a really under-delivered line by Gina Davis. Uh, at some yeah. point in the yeah, film. Yeah, in, in a very strange point during the movie where everybody, where, like, you know, the motivation behind what everybody is doing on screen is a little vague. Um, and, yeah, I, I, you know what? I saw the movie poster for this. Like, as I was watching the movie, I just pulled up the poster and just like, oh, that's weird that they would have, like, a oddly cliched line like that as their, um, you know, tagline for the movie. And then Gina Davis says it. I'm like, oh, is this what it's from? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering because it feels like... I. I I, I think I think maybe it is, but that's so weird because how did that get so much traction? There's there's so many things in I mean, this movie this that are more memorable sh- than that line. Well, this was a huge movie, right? Well, yeah, and maybe it's just the fact that that line was on the poster and maybe it got used a lot in the marketing material. But it's so yeah. weird to me because, like, based on its appearance in the film, like, I would never expect that to be so- something that someone like. If you had to name the twenty most memorable things about this film, that line would not even rate. Well, I mean, the thing is, you could also say that about In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, because that one's not even spoken in the movie, in Alien. Is that from Alien? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's from Alien. That's one, that one's not even spoken in there, and, um, you know, that that's also a line that got, like, a lot of traction uh, with, like, a really odd source. I mean, at that point, it's just, just a poster. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's the thing. Maybe it really just, on the strength of being on the poster, it got in there. But that's so weird to me. I really assumed it would have been from something... Something else. So, uh, so yeah. But, yeah, it appears that it is specifically uh, this film got that going somehow. Also, Gina Davis's last name's char- character's last name is Quaith? Veronica yeah. Quaith? Veronica Quaith. Weird. There's a lot of weird names in this movie. Yeah. Like, almost pinchin Seth Brundle, Veronica Quaif, Stathis Borans. That's got to be an anagram. Yeah, he's, he's, for he's, he's, he's the one true king of the Seven Kingdoms, I think. Um, after the uh, super something something, Game of Thrones. Right. Does that, so, does that tell? Stathis Stan- Game of what? <laughs> yeah, no. It's I, I think I think it's British. It's from the eighties. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Bath arsonists. <laughs> uh, absinthe roasts, uh, births sonatas. These are all anagrams for Stathis Borans. Oh, I was going to say, I don't remember those character names. Those are even weirder. <laughs> so, yes, uh, this movie. Uh, I haven't seen this in like 20 years. Um, I, I, let me see. I, I saw this once um, before. I think I've only ever seen it once before, and I don't cannot place where when I've seen it, so I'm going to say it's between, like, five and ten years since I've seen this. Yeah, I, I think I saw it uh, not when it first came out or anything. I would have been a little too young, but I think I probably saw it in high school. Um, and 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 I had forgotten significant portions of it, but I'd actually remembered significant portions, too, which was kind of interesting. Uh, just sort of the patchy bits that uh, stuck around versus didn't. 
Um, we should say, you know, we, th- th- this is, of course, a David Cronenberg film, which yeah. is relevant because we watched Nightbreed recently and talked about how maybe we should actually watch a Cronenberg movie rather than a movie that has Cronenberg in it. Uh, oh, this movie does have Cronenberg yes, in it. He has yeah. a little, uh, he has a little masked uh, appearance as a gynecologist in. Was he the dream sequence gynecologist? Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he was the dream sequence gynecologist. Um, but yeah, he's got a mask on, so you can't see him or anything. But just the the voice was just familiar enough. I was like, oh shit, uh, that guy's gonna kill your monster baby <laughs> because he's trying to get rid of the nightbreed. Um, and yet, no, he just totally freaks out and just hangs on to it. If it was actually uh, <laughs> Dr. What's-his-name, Philip Duck, or what did they name him? Philip Dicker? <sighs> yeah, if it was him, he'd, he'd take care of that shit real fast. Yeah. Um, but no, this this one just sort of like stands there screaming <laughs> while a giant maggot flagellates in his hands. Well, well done, Cronenberg. You nailed it. Uh, you know this movie was produced by Mel Brooks? Really? Yeah, uh, he's uncredited, but um, this was probably, this looks like, yeah, it went through his uh, production company because there was a, one producer on and then they left and then it was, uh, then it became Mel Brooks because I think he produced The Elephant Man too. Huh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, he also uncreditedly produced The Elephant Man. I bet I bet he was responsible for the huge cock joke uh, in this. In this was movie. there a cock joke in yeah, this? Yeah, it, it, was, it was just, it was a little bit of patter. I mean, there, there, there's a fair amount of like, Pattery stuff. Yeah, I, uh, between, I, I just uh, sort of spaced through so much of the dialogue in this movie. Um, because the dialogue in this movie is sort of like the opposite of the dialogue in Videodrome, where in Videodrome it's all like, you know, monologues and high handed pronouncements. And in this movie it's just, you know, Jeff Goldblum yeah. being Jeff Goldblumy. Which, you know, I, I don't know if we've ever really talked about this. I fucking love Jeff Goldblum. Like, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm super duper on board with, like, I love his specific weird, bullshitty, uh, yeah, I, dude. I got so disappointed when he joined the cast of um, Criminal Intent and, like, it was just not Jeff Goldblumy. I'm like, oh, come on, this is. And also his head was shaved and he looks so fucking weird because his ears are enormous. <laughs> yeah, he has got some large ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, was he. This, this always confuses me when I watch a movie from before, well, it's slightly before my time. You know, I was two when this came out. Um, was Jeff Goldblum like a a, a hot Hollywood guy? Uh, he was stuck of this movie. I, I want to say he was uh, doing a pretty hot. good clip uh, in the. In no, no like hot mid- is in like oh, like, like hotty yeah, hotty. Like, I don't yeah. know. I don't know if he particularly was. I think he was. I think he was sort of like the weird, funny guy, like you know, good looking enough. But I don't know that he was really associated as like a a hottie at the time. But then again, I was you know uh, a seven year old boy, so it's it's not. Like, I, don't <laughs> I, I, can't, of, I I can't figure out if this movie like is just you know following the trend of what kind of roles Jeff Goldblum was taking, or if this movie was like trying to make Jeff Goldblum sexy at least for like at least an act because there is some like loving camera pans of his like nearly nude body yeah. in the throughout the second act, um, which is just uh, pretty. You don't get a lot of shots like that anymore of men. Yeah. And I, I mean, like, I, I can only name a few movies where, like, the, the male physique is treated so so lovingly, but at the same time, like, so objectified. Well, and it's funny because it, it was refreshing to see. Because, yeah, in the story, that, that second act is definitely playing with the idea of sort of like the, yeah, the, 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 the transformation that you, I feel like you're more likely to see in some sort of, like, nerdy girl, uh, you know, comes out as actually she's really... Uh, beautiful sort oh, of yeah. plot. And you, you don't see that. I don't feel like you see that as much with guys as with girls. And it's usually more in something sort of like, 
yeah, sort of. You know what? And this uh, is the second movie where that happens to Jeff Goldblum. Uh, because the, it, that's roughly the plot of Earth Girls Are Easy. <laughs> Although in that case, he's an alien. So it's more yeah. a matter of misunderstanding than, than a blossoming flower. Uh, <laughs> it's more him learning to assimilate with uh, human Earth-style hunkiness, uh, I think. Uh, him, well, they have to shave his body for it, and then yes. it turns out, like, under there, there are a bunch of hot guys. Yep. And Jim Carrey. Uh I love that movie so much. <laughs> I should watch that again sometime. I saw I saw that for the first time as a kid, and I just did not get it. Oh yeah, and yeah. I watched it with my mom, thing. who was like, also, she was like, I do not understand why this movie. Uh, and and you know, so yeah, I, I had zero appreciation. And then I saw at least pieces of it uh, several years later. It's like, oh, okay, it's 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 a comedy farce. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's interesting to maybe think of these as a as a pair there. I have a theory. Okay, we'll we'll get around to talking about the movie itself, I suppose. But but uh, my my opening thing that I want to talk about as a theory is that Doctor Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, played by Jeff Goldblum, of course, uh, he is actually a clone produced by the existing uh, Matrix pattern buffer in uh, Seth Brundle's uh, machine here. And we never see this in the film. It's never discussed. But the fact that it breaks down the pattern, stores it, and then reproduces in the other telepod suggests that it should be perfectly capable of continuing to reproduce it in the other telepod, uh, given the right sort of, I don't know, chemical material as input. Uh, And therefore, you could probably toss out extra clones. Um, And so Dr. Ian Malcolm actually is just a guy who showed up like a week later in that abandoned, terrible apartment with a rotting corpse on the floor uh, when the thing got a power surge from, like, a brownout. And and so he comes out, wakes up naked, not totally understanding what's going on, knowing that he's Seth Brundle, knowing something terrible had been going on. And, uh, and then he just gets the fuck out of Dodge. He, yeah, he finds some clothes, he gets out of there, and he switches fields, he gets into chaos theory, uh, and then he goes and ends up at Jurassic Park, and then he's a bundle of nerves there the whole time, partly because he's so uncomfortable with yet another version of uh, reconstituting genetic material. Like, he thought he was just sort of checking out uh, logistics, and then he's like, oh, shit. Uh, no, once again, someone is playing God, and this time it's not me, and this time it's dinosaurs, but still. So he's super uncomfortable with the whole situation. That's the underlying tension driving his weird nerviness. Uh, and uh, maybe a little bit of PTSD from being this mysterious clone who knows he's a clone but also thinks he's a real guy, and and yeah. So going with that theory, would the uh, hunky scientist in Independence Day, also played by Jeff Goldblum, be that guy or yet a third clone? The the, the machine just kept chunking him out. (laughs) And it just kept happening. And every other role Jeff Goldblum has been in before – and since, if the timeline works right, uh, is actually a clone of Seth Brundle. There's a whole whole pile of Brundles, and uh, they're 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 all over the Earth, uh, infiltrating every field of science. Eventually, they will develop a kind of fly-like hive mind, and that will be the coming of the singularity and the creation of Skynet and the downfall of humanity. It, it's not it's not computers that wipe out humanity. It's Seth Brundles. They just use the computers as a front man. Brundle Geddon. Yep. I like that. I like that idea. Seth Pocalypse. <laughs> I like how the, when the computer just ref- keeps referring to him in like the third person as Brundle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like what, what else was it? It's like what other DNA was located? DNA located was not Brundle. 
thanks, computer. Yep. Um, that was the weirdest computer setup they had. It made dot matrix printing noises when it displayed information on the screen. It uh, had a very, very comprehensive parser. Uh, it was voice activated for no reason. Except for when it wasn't, which was a weird thing. Like, yeah. Okay, I, I will say up front... I enjoy nitpicking the science and films, and I've acknowledged that oftentimes I want to nitpick the science and films where there's no reasonable reason to do so. And this is a film where there is no reasonable reason to no. actually try and nitpick it because, of course, it's like every bit of quote-unquote science of this film is abjectly in the service of the story that they're telling, which is not a story about the scientific method. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you replace like the telepods and like the computer with a wizard did it, it'd be the same movie. Yeah. You know, this could th- he could have found a haunted uh, fortune-telling machine out on the pier. And there was a fly stuck yeah. in it for some reason. Um, so, 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 yeah, I will acknowledge up front, I'm sure I will say a number of things about things that are dumb in the, the computer and the science and whatnot, but I want to be clear that I know how dumb it is for me to complain about those things. I just enjoy it, so, you know, so deal Yeah, with I it. mean, like, the, the science in this movie is, it's, I mean, they actually did a really good job of, like, showing how, just how pulpy it was. You know, the, the pods, which is, like, the element that I remember most from, like, my childhood when I hadn't seen it, but I, you know, I hung out in, like, the horror section of the uh, movie rental place a lot, because uh, me and my mom went there a lot. Um, and I remember, like, those pods, like, just the shape of them, the, uh, the sort of like egg but like scalloped egg sort of thing um is just very clear in my memory and just like you know between those and like the big the you know the, the big you know super high tech but at the same time kind of like you know clanky looking computer um i, I just sort of like lo- I, I like the, the the pulpiness of the the aesthetic yeah. there um yeah and the and, pod the pod yeah. visual is great too i mean it's, it's oh, yeah, it yeah. looks so good and I, I gotta say that cover really struck me that the the classic glowing one human arm coming out one <laughs> insect leg coming out of the foggy open thing very alien like extremely it's almost like we need to make a cover that looks like the cover of alien but we <laughs> we're not making a movie that has any of those elements in it how do we do it? And boom, that was like the, the cover they came up with or something. Yeah, and I mean, like, even the color scheme is roughly the same as Alien. It's yeah. just you know, all green uh, and then just very, very muted uh, black and white and, like, a little bit of other color. They, um, I wonder if it was the same designer. It's just one I guy. That's one no guy idea he that up. He's done those two super successful movies and, yeah. and, and 50 terrible movies that have all have green the, uh, egg-shaped things on the covers. <laughs> have you seen the Polish movie poster? Do you know about Polish movie posters? I do know about them. So they, they, for those of you listening, you can yeah. just straight up Google Polish movie posters. Um, in Poland and I think some other Eastern European countries, where, uh, this is during like the, the 70s, 80s, not into the 90s, I don't think, but definitely during the 70s and 80s, they didn't use like American movie posters where they just, you know, slap, you know, remove like the name in, in English and replace it with Polish. Um, they would just commission artists to draw and like create these movie posters. And oftentimes they had like nothing to do with the subject matter outside of like you know sort of like a visual kind of reference like i used to own one um for die hard and it was just like a a glass pyramid floating in the clouds and that works you know if you if you know what the hell's going on that that works for like you know nakatomi plaza and everything but uh the one so the one for the fly it's sort of like the stick figure and it's weird because it's rendered in um in a what do you call it the just the really old TVs, if you know how, like, an Atari works, you know how they scan, like, each scan line across? It's sort of rendered in that kind of thing, so not really pixely, but at the same time jagged. And it's, you know, the stick figure of a man with um, uh, very, like, with, uh, what do you call it, those fly um, mustache with the 
the things that grow on his back, uh, the, the feelers coming out of his back, just yeah. vomiting onto the floor, and that's it. That's the poster. <laughs> and it's and it's really cool looking and kind of creepy. Um, and yet, you know, that's it, I, I always like that one. Yeah. That was one of my favorites no, awesome. that I would never put up in my apartment. <laughs> no, I remember the, uh, the, the, the Polish movie posters thing, actually. Uh, I, I remember them very clearly because they've been posted like 10 times to Metafilter. And so it's like one of the specific little things that I've deleted so many double posts on where someone's like, <laughs> oh, you've got to check out these awesome Polish movie posters. It's like, yeah, we checked them out last year and the year before. And so, yes, it's because, I mean, they're really neat looking. And, and until they had sort of, I think, sort of pervaded the blogosphere uh, you know, nobody knew that somebody else had made a post, and there's no specific, other than like Polish movie posts, there's no specific you know link necessarily because there'll always be a roundup of images hosted on some forum or another. Uh, but yeah, no, they're, they're they're great, and it's it's funny. Like every once in a while, you see someone does like their own minimalist take on like poster design or book design, and I always think of that it's like like no, nothing wrong with the exercise, but it's almost like hey, look at this crazy thing I pu- managed to pull off that people from another country have been doing for decades oh right there's uh there's actually i just remember there was a russian one for star wars um that just said you know star wars in russian um and then this the the what do you call it the subtitle was a galactic western or like an outer space western um and then the poster itself was just a cowboy on a horse but in silhouette you know, against stars, but like the filled in silhouette was just, you know, like random pieces of technology, like parts of a computer and like a calculator, nothing to do with the movie. (laughs) Really awesome poster. (laughs) Nice. Uh, so yes, the fly, the fly, fly. (laughs) um, I love how this movie starts just mid, not, not even mid, like at the tail end of exposition is where we come into the movie. Um, it's just, it's, it's a, uh, what do you, what, what do you call that kind of opening? Um, uh, uh cold open. Yeah. Cold open or in medias res, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's more, uh, in the middle of speech than in the middle of action per se. In this yeah. Case. It's, it's Jeff Goldblum talking to Gina Davis and we are past the point where he has charmed her, which is the funny part. And then, then he, he's just like trying to explain to her that like his invention will change the world. And then five minutes later they are in his lab. Yep. Um, they, Cronenberg did not like, did not want to do a lot of world building with this one. I don't even know where this movie takes place. Well, and I I thought it was great. Yeah. Cause they, they just sort of get right down to it in a way that, you know, there could have been like 10 minutes of setup there, but like, why? Yeah, no, there's no reason for that. They, they, they get straight to the weird sort of like, uh, well, no, no, come back to my place and see it. Uh, journalism versus huckster magic show. You know, it's, I think it's, it works well as a slightly disjointed, uh, just jump straight into the story. Um, I, I, I liked in so so this conversation they're having right when the movie starts is at some sort of event. Like there's some sort of uh, yeah, there's something writing the word art in yeah. laser beam on like a statue in there. It's some sort yeah, of big, gala, big stacks, um, white spheres, and yeah, art in yeah. laser. And I was like that. That's indeed that's the artiest art that ever arted right there. Uh, yeah, but was, there must have been like there was at least two other scientists there. Yeah, because she but, had other interviews that he somehow completely failed to understand that that's what she was doing. Uh, I liked that because like it, it was it seemed like the economy of the dialogue at the beginning was making it very clear to <laughs> to us and to him presumably that she was here doing interviews, yeah. which implies that journalism. And then he's so 
disconcerted like 10 minutes later when she's like, oh, great. I really look forward to writing about this in my capacity as a journalist. And he's like, what? Yeah, I, yeah. when he like he walks away and she's like, oh, shit, like this works. I better get this on audio tape. And, you know, she turns the audio tape on, puts it in her pocket. And like, oh, she's going to like secretly record him. And then she just flips it out. She's like, hang on. I got to change sides on this tape I'm yeah. recording you with. Which I'm then just when, like, oh, that's not secret. Um, and later when we're looking at the tape playing back, there's so much left on that side. She was like two minutes into that side. I don't know. Well, what you know, she had, uh, she had a Wham album on the rest of it. Yeah, and she didn't true, want to yeah. write that over. Yeah, she, that, that's how she does her journalism. She just takes the, the tail end of the short sides of albums on cassette and, and, and records over those. It's all about uh, saving money. Uh, I, when, in the first little bit of the movie, I was really worried that I was going to spend the entire movie thinking about how 1986 it was. And, you know, it stays 1986 in costume design, uh, but it doesn't really get too hung up on like this. It's not chock full it's, of, uh, yeah, it's not like Terminator. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's the, there, her hair, uh, I guess his hair, hair. The, the, the skinny tie, the executive office vibe with the douchey editor, ex-boyfriend. I mean, that is a stock character from the eighties that we don't see anymore. Like the, the douchey, um, like kind of lecherous guy with a beard, you know, or not always lecherous, but like, just like this unrepentant asshole. You, you, you got him, you got, uh, what's his name? The, uh, EPA guy from Ghostbusters. You have that, uh, executive from Die Hard. These are all like variations on the same character yeah. that you don't see. You, you see in like the late seventies and then the eighties into the late eighties. You don't see that guy anymore. Yeah. I think the Coke trail just dried up a little bit. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, there's these things that seem very signifiers of 1986. But, like, at the beginning of the movie, I, it felt like, you know, references that felt, like, uh, very 1986. Like, he he's trying to conjole her back to the lab to show her the, the project. And he, he talks about how he can make her uh, a cappuccino. You know, he, has a, he can make her an espresso drink at home. Yeah. Which which I, I realize most people still don't have that. But it's, like, it's so much less of a brag now. It's, like... If, if at this point you're like, oh, yeah, I have an espresso machine, people are like, oh, you're somebody who owns an espresso machine. Okay. Oh, there was a point where um, I think it's when he first successfully clones the baboon and he picks it up. He's just like, is it real or, or is it Memorex? Yeah, is I'm it just life like, or is it Memorex? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Which is as like, close as a movie gets to acknowledging the underlying you know, dilemma of the nature of teleportation and continuity of, of consciousness and existence, which otherwise the film just completely doesn't. Uh, which again, it's it's not a movie that's trying to be yeah. about that. It's about his you know journey and corruption by the tainted process that he's trying to pioneer. It's not about the question of the nature of existence. But there's that little thing where it seems like he briefly acknowledges that conundrum and then just moves right on with it. And and it was through that dated uh, reference that yeah it would make no sense to to anybody not already familiar with that as a obsolete advertising slogan for tapes was it tapes yeah it was for it was for cassettes which is probably like the single shortest lived audio recording well and memorex also i think i think they may have done like uh, video tapes well and i, and I want to say that they may have been involved in like dictation stuff um older than older than cassette tapes but i'm not sure that's a vague impression um I don't know. We should look into that sometime. They make iPod docs now? Do they? Yeah. Looks like it. Yeah. Uh, but yes. Uh, so yeah, no, that, that actually, I don't know if I have a lot to say about the film not saying anything about. Like that. That's a thing I can talk about and I think we have talked about uh, before in 
episodes that touched more on the question of the nature of that kind of uh, continuity of existence. And yeah. you know, when you're teleported, do you come out the other side or does some new being come out on the other side with the same mental configuration and so it assumes it's you? And for that matter, when you go to sleep at night and when you wake up, is it still you or is it somebody else? Uh, is anything that happened before this specific moment in your life something that actually happened to you or just the state that your brain was in when it was created moments ago when the universe came into being? Because how would you know the difference between a memory of something you experienced and a memory that exists in a freshly minted brain that stores the exact same data as you know was built up over time in a, uh, an organic memory? All that stuff... Film film doesn't want to go there. Not 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 what the film is. Uh, no, which is it, it, which is good because this would not have been the kind of film where that would have been yeah, welcome I, alongside I, of the. Uh, yeah, I don't know how it would have fit in. So yeah. I, mean, I think it's this is not a complaint exactly. It's just interesting to see it like be sitting right there and then not happen there. Uh, another very eighties reference that feels like is you know she refers to the pods when she sees them as designer phone booths. Uh, because phone booths were a, a thing still yeah, that's at right. that point. That's right. Like if you asked, uh, I was talking to to Angela uh, about this as we were watching it, and she sort of brought that up. It's like you know, if you ask like eight year olds what a phone booth is, you know, what the hell would they think it is? Like, oh, it's like a special like private room for when you don't want people to hear conversations, or if you want to like sext in private, you go into the phone booth <laughs> or something. You know, it's yeah. It's an, I, there's actually still a, a couple phone booths around uh, in my neighborhood, some of which even have phones in them, although I don't know if the phones work. Um, but they're just like the they're, – they're sort of like the unenclosed, just sort of like cubby rather Oh, I don't think I've ever – have I ever – I don't think I've ever seen an actual phone booth, phone booth. All the ones over here have just been the ones like with like the small metal enclosure like overhead and on the sides. But I don't think I've ever seen a – like a straight-up phone booth. Like, in person. I just realized that. That's super weird. Huh. How about that? Yeah. Uh, time, it passes by. But yeah, anyway, that's. I guess that's my thought. Like, I, I stopped really noticing the 80s stuff for the most part uh, as the film went on, which I don't know if it's because the film really just managed to avoid those things or it was compelling enough that I stopped nitpicking about it. Um <laughs> I mean, they were pretty good. Like, the, his, his laboratory setting is, you know, sort of, it's contemporary. Like, it's not, you know, like a Dr. Frankenstein-type lab or, uh, but at the same time, it's also, you know, there's no, like, big signifiers of this is 1980-something, save for, like, I don't know, maybe, like, the red leather couch. But that, you know, sort of, you know, absent-minded scientist who lives in his lab could have just been like, oh, yeah, that, that one, fine, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, um, and his 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 whole lab setup seems to be going for the idiosyncratic. Hey, I just got the yeah. things I got, and I live alone, and I'm weird. Yeah, and like the whole thing about like the five identical suits is just. I mean, that that's just cartoonish at that point. Like it's it's you know I've seen it in like a dozen cartoons where the lead character where you know they they don't change the outfits on the characters because that will you know that's too much work. So you know at one point the character reveals like his closet and it's all like identical outfits. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed seeing that scene in what is you know otherwise a pretty serious movie. Yeah, there, uh, there, there's a bunch of weird little flickers of humor um, throughout the film that I think is kind of fun. I, I sort of associate that with 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 Cronenberg, I guess. Like even yeah. even stuff that is like pretty serious, there tends to be those weird little moments that are hard not to laugh at and think that that's sort of intentional. 
Like, there's plenty of films where it's been hard not to laugh at times when I don't think I was supposed yes. to. But, but I, I, I always sort of get the feeling that that, that Cronenberg's winking a little bit uh, during some of the odd. You know, you just sort of have to like. Oh. Yeah, during this era, yeah. But I think during like later on, you know, History of Violence, Eastern Promises, Eric Cronenberg. I think he lost that, and that's why I, th- I think I enjoy those movies less. Uh, I, I, I've seen. I've seen. Uh, uh, a history of violence, and I, I still haven't seen Eastern Promises, and I'd, I'd like to. I really enjoyed uh, uh, History of Violence, and, and, and I agree, it, like it, it lacks that sense of humor. I don't remember at any point during that film particularly cracking a smile. Um, yeah, but I, I, I still liked it. I guess I guess I'm down with that specific sort of like you know uh, heavy sort of weird drama feel when he's doing it, but it is definitely a little bit less fun than something like this or even like you know it's weird to say this but I feel like even Naked Lunch had uh, some of those odd little moments and partly because you know Burroughs for as, as weird and dark as his writing was was also occasionally kind of a funny guy too you know in, in how he approached some of his odd storytelling so um, yeah yeah this, this, this see this definitely falls into sort of like because I was saying that uh probably last episode or the episode before and you sort of called me on it when I was saying like I think of Cronenberg as like you know he always has this sort of goopy practical effect and, it, it, yeah. and really what we're talking about is like Cronenberg uh, in the 80s and, and, and the 90s uh, to some extent is what that is because yeah stuff like mm-hmm. stuff like uh, History of Violence uh, that's not there I mean, it, it carries over in a different way to stuff like History of Violence and Eastern Promises, where, because you remember in History of Violence, there is just like, there is a lot of very, very visceral people getting shot and yeah. stabbed and yeah. like necks cut. And it's, it's, instead of being like, you know, supernaturally like in this, it's sort of like almost hyper realistic where they, you know, he goes to pains to make it to make it just like really stand out when like somebody gets like shot in the face in a history of violence or when somebody you know like gets their throat slit and um, yeah there's there's still there's yeah. still really visceral use of practical effects for sort of stuff that could be termed i guess body horror if you just want to take the mundanity of terrible things happening to a person's body rather than fantastically so um yeah it's special effects but it's not like fantastic special effects yeah. Yeah, not, yeah. Not, not fantastical, we should say. They're, they're great yeah. special effects. Uh, they're just not, uh, yeah. So the special so, effects in this movie were terrific. Yeah. I watched this. Um, I We spent, like, a bunch of yesterday cleaning, so I just put on the two towers. Um, and I am just shocked by how poorly the CGI in that is aging. Just, just really staggered, even from like the last time I saw it, which was four years ago, oh, five yeah. years ago at yeah, the I, most. I don't think I, I don't think I've rewatched any of those since about when they came out. Yeah, you know, I've seen I've seen the first two Hobbit films, um, which looked good, certainly as far as that goes. But yeah, I haven't revisited the, the Lord of the Rings films at all. So it's really it just like you can sort of it's, see they were pushing and maybe not. I mean, I, I saw all of them except fellowship in the theater and even fellowships, not that bad, but just two towers. And, um, I'm going to assume return of the King as well. It's just really, really stands out, which like in contrast to something like this, where, you know, the effects do not look dated. They look great. These are, you know, the, this is once again, why I, you know, constantly harp on like uh, practical effects and how they should be used more yeah. because this you know the effects in this movie are not 
I don't think they're going to age. You can, I, I feel like you can watch this movie in 50 years and the effects still accomplish uh, what they set out to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, to, to the extent that you can criticize the lack of, you know, convincingness of any of the effects, it's just that's the nature of the thing. Like, you know, this is as good as the practical effects reasonably could have been. And they look good enough. You know, they, they, they aren't distractingly bad. Like, they're, they're distracting if you find effects distracting, period. Yeah. Like, obviously, you know that's not really a giant fly with the remaining semi-human skin molting off it. It's an effect. But, you know, there's nothing that looks particularly bad about that sequence other than just the raw limits of a convincing, you know, puppet or animatronic uh, being constructed for that sort of thing. Like, you know, you could throw a billion dollars at getting a better looking effect, I'm sure. But practically speaking, it's really solid. It's really solid and it doesn't feel like someone put it together with shoestring. It feels like someone did a really solid job uh, constructing and executing that particular look. Uh, this movie cost $9 million. That's it. Like, I think even back then, that was a tiny ass budget. That's, you know, yeah, I mean, well, I don't know if it's tiny, but it's definitely small, especially for something that turned out to be so big. I don't know if they yeah. knew it was going to be big, I guess, as part of it. Um, but it's it's also, it's not super shocking to me that the budget's that small, because I feel like there isn't a whole lot of uh, set to this film. You know, it, it's a small yeah. cast, it's a small number of locations, you know, I feel like almost all that money probably just went straight into, you know, cast and effects, uh, because it's really like all the money on the screen feels like it's with the transformational stuff in the makeup. You know, I mean, where else? Where else were they really spending any particular yeah, money on uh, this? Like, yeah, I mean, they didn't. They a didn't scene in an office a at a of, uh, newspaper. Yeah, you don't have I mean, car explosions. Yeah, the scene where like you know he breaks through that wall at the gynecologist's <laughs> office that was probably kind of pricey. Where he Kool Aid Man's right in there. Yeah, that was a, that was a little bit goofy. Um, I mean, it, it felt very classic monster movie pastiche, and so it's like it's like yeah, okay, King Kong is here, but uh, but <laughs> the, the specific shot was was definitely a bit goofy. I mean, yeah, I mean, and and uh, that was yeah, that that surprised me both times that it happened. Like the last time I seen it, and now just because they didn't really give you a hint as to where that office was or the fact that that was a window facing the outdoors. Yeah, yeah, those glass um, cubes are sort of hard to know what to make sense of. It doesn't have quite the same strength uh, visually as just an actual plate glass window where you're like, oh, I totally see a plate glass window right here, baby. But I guess that way they could get away with not having to uh, have the, the process of having someone come through a wall be as visible. Yeah. They could just get away with more of a, a shadow before breaking through. Was there a single shot in this movie of, of like the outside of a window? I don't think there was. <laughs> There, there were some establishing shots outside. Yeah, there's a, there's a few itself. establishing shots. Um, like that one, one shot of which, of the magazine like, building or whatever. And one where, like, Stathis is spying on, like, uh, Brundle and uh, Veronica. Yeah. And he's got, like, the car with the, with the license plate that says Particle because that is the magazine that yes. he edits. And you, you think you would take the car that wouldn't immediately give you away if anybody spotted it. I think I think most of the time, if you're doing sort of impromptu amateur stalking, you're probably not thinking that too, <laughs> through too carefully. It's not like you're an undercover cop. It's not like you have a sense of procedure. You're just like, oh, I'm going to go spy on this. And you're probably counting on them not expecting you to be spying, and so they're not scanning their surroundings for familiar-looking license plates. So, you know, it's I, I can sort of understand it. I agree it's it's bad tactics, you know, borrow a car or take the plate off or something, but uh, but still, yeah. 
I, I can forgive it on the basis that the guy didn't seem to particularly know what he was doing. He was just being sort of a creeper. Which I want to say, I resent somewhat the fact that the tail end of this movie, like the the, the final uh, set piece, forces me to sort of cheer for that douche because yeah. he's he's, yeah. he's so unlikable. He's he, he's such this like you know standoffish, uh, greasy not standoffish but but sort of greasy misogynist like pushy ex boyfriend. You know, and he seems like he's trying to be a little bit self-aware about the fact that he is, but at the same time, he still totally is. And then at the end, uh, Brundle just goes off the fucking deep end, and this guy has to do a heroic struggle to plow through the shock to pull out the yeah, shotgun. I mean, he, he saves the day, which for that kind of character, you know, maybe that, that I mean, I, I could see that being like explicitly a Cronenbergian thing because they didn't, he did not take any pains to make this character at all sympathetic. You know, like yeah. the, the second time we see him, he is taking a shower in his ex-girlfriend's apartment, like super creepy. Yeah. Um, and refusing to give her key back. Uh, yeah. yeah the, 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 he just comes off as like totally gross. And then, and then, yeah, and then we get, uh, he gets to sort of make the heroic thing at the end. And I mean, I can sort of accept the fact that, okay, this guy has clearly gotten some profound comeuppance if we want to talk about, like, you know, retribution for being gross. You know, he had his fucking hand and, and, and foot melted off. Uh, so that's pretty bad. And, and, and as far as that goes, you know, karmic balance, I think he's probably in okay shape now and can begin building a new, better life. Uh, where he's not a terrible person, but it's still it's still weird. Like we don't we don't get to like really experience a redemption with him. I'm just making an excuse to try and feel better about the fact that this more or less unredeemed character ends up being the the, the guy who who does the right thing. And yeah, it's I don't know. Like I was more on board with Gorman blowing himself up in Aliens than I was with this guy by a long shot. And Gorman was yeah. a useless pain in the ass who got people killed. So I don't know. I don't know. I yeah. I I, I mean, like I, I can see the motivation in him, like saving her, being not from the fact that you know they they are former you know lovers or whatever, and just him doing like the thing you need to do at that moment to save the day. But yeah, I, I wish there was like one more character in this movie. Like even if Tawny had been the one that does that, just shows up out of nowhere and blasts the thing, that would have like that that would have left less of a sour taste yeah. in my mouth than than Stathis doing it. If, if it weren't completely at odds with the notion of Gina Davis being uh, the person thrown into the pod, it would have been much more satisfying if she had been given the agency to actually you know stop the whole thing. And I realize she gets the the final moment there where she makes the tearful decision to blow off the head of uh, Brundle Pod, but. Uh, but yeah, like it'd be nice if she'd been able to be a more decisive character in how that all played out rather than end up sort of falling into damsel territory uh, for the, the final stretch of the film. Yeah, yeah, that whole ending thing is just so fraught. Um, and, I, and I wonder how much of it was like to intentionally spark like a conversation like this and how much of it was just like all right uh, hollywood ending time and this is you know like my big hollywood movie um because this was his like big hollywood movie wasn't it i don't, I don't think he's um trying to think like scanners i mean that was just a horror movie dead ringers videodrome existence was was an indie movie i think yeah um yeah like i think this was like his big big movie so i mean that could be why yeah i don't know how big naked lunch was i mean it's a weird movie and so i assume not not huge but uh 
but but sort of well known, I guess, to some extent. But yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it's interesting, and I, I think I, I, I sort of wish there had been a little bit more development of maybe Brundlefly's later thoughts, because the idea that he he it's established that he realizes that what he's accidentally created was a gene splicer. You know, he was trying to build a teleporter, and it turns out he created a gene splicer and a gene splice himself, and now he's Brundlefly. And he never, for a second considered that in this dingy ass apartment in which he is performing his experiments a foreign body could get into the uh yeah. could get into the thing well again again with the this is why i need to not worry too much about the science of it because obviously it's fucking idiotic not to to think about sort of clean room stuff if you're trying to yeah do like this sort of perfect uh breakdown and, and resynthesis of of uh like organic matter or whatever um but yeah, it is sort of it, it is sort of dumb that like you know it's it's lucky that this is the first time the issue came up, and and the implication is it's probably the only time the issue would come up, and you know anybody else teleporting if they made sure there wasn't a fly in there would have been just fine. Uh, one thing I wasn't clear on was whether the idea was that the problem is that the fly was in there, or that the problem was that the fly was in there and also he had that cut on his back, like. Like I don't, it, it, I don't it think the cut had to do with anything. I mean, they 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 didn't sort of. I mean, like, I, are you referring to the fact that the cut later starts sprouting like the the fly? Yeah, that's the thing. Like, like, like the cut becomes this focal point of some of the early weird hybrid stuff, and and it's only because of that that it makes me wonder if there's supposed to be an implication that that was core to the problem or not. Because if it isn't, then it's sort of weird that they focused on that. And if it is, then it's weird that they didn't make it more clear in the story that that was supposed to be the big error. Because, like, you know, bloody wound, maybe this... And, and he's teaching the machine to understand that, no, flesh goes on the outside. And so maybe that would have been the thing where it was like, oh, I got I to gotta fill in this gap. I'm, I'm making an out, inside-out baboon again. Uh, I was programmed not to do that. I'd better close it up with some genetic material. But yeah, it's like it feels like a total shrug because I don't think I don't think there's anything in the film that really tells us one way or the other. Um, insofar as there's nothing that tells us one way or the other, and it probably wasn't supposed to be that. I kind of yeah. wish they had just skipped that whole little bit because I don't see what the point was. I mean, but then you wouldn't get like that weird out moment where you know he's he's he becomes like the ubermensch uh after getting out of the machine we wouldn't have anything to just like while he's not yet developed like the acne while he's still like you know at like at the at the peak of his like you know brundle fly still humanness yeah we wouldn't have anything to sort of stick to to be like well wait hang on that's well, weird but I, I i think he could have had that even without having a previous sort of not clear why we need that injury as a thing like i, I think mean, that, that, he could have just had was, a weird rash on his back without yeah, having to it, have it been was injured. a little hackneyed that you know like they, there's this weird it's like oh whoops i laid down in this microchip i had in the bed and it exactly. cut me it feels it and feels then, awkward yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 definitely awkward, but I, you know, like I can see, I can see the 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 intent of, of uh, yeah, what no, you're yeah. with that. Um, I, I just, I, I think it, I, I think it was maybe a little bit clumsy and unnecessary. I think they could have just by fiat declared that he developed some odd little rash on his back or something without having to have the whole microchip thing going on. Uh, it's my. I feeling. like it that 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 he just basically goes through puberty. <laughs> he gets the acne, and then he gets like the weird facial hair. Yep. Um, his voice starts changing. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, strange this, new fluids start coming out of him. Yeah, exactly. This this whole thing is just uh, he gets mood swings, <laughs> horny all the time. 
this is just straight up like him going through puberty again. Um, maybe for the first time. Maybe that's the thing. Yeah, he jokes about like he's finally getting body hair. He's always wanted body hair. So you know, maybe maybe he's got a strange genetic disorder that actually delayed some of the uh, secondary sexual characteristics. No, no, I, I think what was the line? I've never had enough body hair, which Something is like just that, yeah. very eighties sort of like <laughs> <laughs> male aesthetic thing. <laughs> that that's that's that is no longer the it thing. Is I having body? <laughs> I was going to be a lumberjack, but they wouldn't let me in. I couldn't grow enough chest hair. I could take up science. I like I like that the only reason that his long hair is not notable, aside from it being like maybe more reasonable in the the eighties, is that that Gina Davis's hair was a lot more. Like she had some some large large hair in the film, so it his sort of like they used roughly the same amount of product. Yeah. <laughs> Hers maybe just had a little more styling to it, but they 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 were both destroying the ozone with whatever was going in their hair. When he asked her for something personal during the uh, stage magic, because his whole presentation, it was not an accident that the whole thing read sort of like a magic act. Like I'm sure oh, no, that was very I mean, like, extremely intentional. Even, even the lead up to it, where he's just like tooling around on the piano, and she's just like, "Well, this is bullshit. I'm gonna go." He's just like, "No, now that you've seen here, I can't let you leave." Dun 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 on the pianos. That was great. Yeah. No, I thought that was that, that was that was nice. Uh, and yeah, he does the whole thing like a stage magician. It like totally reads out. Like I like I don't think the character was supposed to think of it that way. It's just that he didn't know not to come off as literally a huckster. Uh, but then when he asked her for something uh, personal, you know, I, I we were totally joking. Like you know, oh, he wants your underwear. Gina Davis, uh, and then she takes off her stocking, and I didn't know until she got to the stocking that it was definitely the stocking. It's like, oh my god, is she gonna actually? No, okay, but uh, but yes. I wonder if like there is just in that opening, it's it, maybe it's, you could either read into it or you know it could be very subtle that like okay, she's there for work. But she also really wants to nail Brundle. She was just like, you know, she showed up there. She's like, damn. And then he's just like, I've got a machine that'll change the world. She's just like, all right, what the hell? You know, if I can't get the story, at least I'm getting laid tonight. And then he introduces her to the stuff. And she's just like, oh, he's not picking up on any of these signals. He's like, I need something personal. She's like, all right, last shot. (laughs) He's like, great, I'll teleport this. (laughs) Yeah, no, and and that, that would sort of work with the establishment of character as like, you know, not particularly uh, socially skilled, doesn't get out enough, very, very much stuck in his scientific world and whatnot, and she definitely has to sort of come on to him. Um, which, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's... Uh, Just gets out her little journal steno pad, writes the word, fuck me. Here, teleport <laughs> this. Okay. <laughs> he holds it upside down. Ew. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 thought, I, I thought that was... I, I thought that worked... You know, to, to whatever extent it was intended to be uh, uh, subtle or not, uh, I thought it worked pretty well. The the establishment of their two characters and and sort of like the the attraction, but her having to do the work uh, to make that happen. And then, of course, he gets all hypersexed later on, and that that trades off it well uh, as a, a balance later in the film. But uh, but yeah, uh, who is selling this man baboons? I that's that's a big question because I mean that's the thing a baboon. Is not a cheap lab animal. Like, like if you if you expect something bad to happen, like clearly he knows bad things happen with organic matter. He's done it before. He knows it's going to go wrong. And yet, a baboon, when he doesn't have any reason to expect that he's fixed it, as far as we can tell, uh, 
that's that seems yeah, like a really bad the, piece of decision making. Yeah, from like from like the little that we get from the science, it doesn't sound like there would be. It would be reasonably more complicated to do it with a mouse than it is with, you know, if it's breaking it down to the molecular level where you're dealing with, you know, trillions upon trillions of, you know, individual pieces. At that point, like, a mouse and a baboon aren't going to be that complicated. Yeah, like, you can get, least, like, a whole fucking least, box of mice for the cost of a baboon. Oh, yeah, I think a, a, a lot more than a box. You could get, a, like, a, a, a pallet of mice for the price of a baboon, I would expect. And the thing is, yeah, so, so like, why does this not occur to him? Why is he not using mice or rats or something? Uh, which I don't think there's any good answer for other than it's much easier to do a convincing, uh, easily visually parsable effect of an inverted baboon than an That's inverted true. rat. Like, you know, the yeah, baboon is a little big fleshy thing. Uh, but yeah, it's... <laughs> And that second baboon that he successfully teleports, that monkey loves him. Yeah, I know. Like, he, not only, he, he is not just getting lab baboons. He's getting the kind of lab baboons that won't eat your face off. Like, it's a highly trained, highly socialized yeah, It runs baboon. out of the thing and just jumps into his arms for a hug. Yeah. And you know, it sits in a chair while he has a conversation with it. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like Clint Eastwood in, in what, what was that, Every Which Way But Loose uh, with, the, with the orangutan. One of those. What was that Eastwood film? Anyway, yes, it's like that. Chumming around with it. Suddenly, it's a it's a buddy with a, an animal movie. Briefly, and he apologizes yeah. for for killing its brother. I don't know. Maybe it was literally its brother. Maybe maybe they were like twins, and he adopted them, and they decided to use them for no. Because there was at one point like a cage, like one of those you know like pet carrier cages that says like caution live animal, and I assume somebody delivered the baboon in that. Which which is what the Bartok Institute is that what yeah. was Bartok? Uh, yep. Which we Maybe never hear about later in the film. Like like he mentions he mentions it a couple times. But then it goes away, and presumably Bartok is where these are these these baboons are coming from. You know, it's where all the other funding and stuff is coming from. But like, nary another word about it. We don't find out about like when the the, the douchey editor goes looking into Brundle. I don't think he even mentions anything interesting or sinister about Bartok. It just it's the corporation fundamentally responsible for all this falling completely off the face of the earth later in the film. Which yeah, I kind of like his 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 reason for like is just like well, you know, it's like the she's like you know, does the Bartok Corporation fund all this? He's like, yep, and I don't cost them a lot of money, so they don't bother me. It's like no, you just. Order two consecutive baboons. Well, you know, maybe if they're like doing like hardcore like weapons R and D and stuff, like the cost of a couple of baboons might be cheap. It still seems like <laughs> baboon if, breeding if, company that has too many baboons. <laughs> <laughs> so no, here, here's what it is. Okay, this ties into the earlier theory about all the Jeff Goldblum characters being Seth Brundle clones. The company's working for they already have a working teleporter slash gene splicer slash cloning machine, but it's expensive to operate. And they did a big bulk run of baboons uh, <laughs> because that was something that, like at the scale, they they, they managed to sell like a hundred thousand baboons, and at that scale, they could actually like make it reasonably profitable to run the machine. But for smaller scale stuff, it's just no, it's not going to work. And so they need a cheaper solution. And so they're investing, you know, a couple million bucks over time into this guy over a couple years to. to source him parts and materials and test subjects uh, to try and, and pursue some of his high efficiency things, even though he doesn't realize that they've already got the problem figured out. So they've been also maybe feeding him a little bit of uh, tech on the sly without him realizing that they were actually uh, uh, trying to abet the whole process. 
Yeah, uh, that's true. Or it so, can be just like, all right, we'll we'll fund you, but for tax purposes, you need to use at least six baboons a year. <laughs> exactly, and that's why the baboons are so chill because they've been through like uh, pods a bunch of times. For like, that's where they came from. It's like a womb to them. Like, oh yeah, I'll go in there. I won't die horribly. I trust you, Jeff Goldblum. That's Invented that's what a it baboon is. Baboon axolotl tank. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> That poor. I felt so bad for that baboon. That was it. Was it was pretty rough. It was pretty rough. I think there's some sort of deleted baboon scene somewhere out there too. And I I, I just saw this while googling around, uh, trying to. This was a hard movie for me to source the actual film. Uh, not streaming anywhere, which not nope. shocking. But uh, but also, I swear to God, like a few days ago, I looked. Uh, on like can I stream it or something and it didn't have any streaming but it didn't have it like for sale on a few places I really <laughs> thought I saw that like I could like buy it on I don't know whatever iTunes and, and Voodoo or whatever uh, but but I, I searched last night I was like oh okay I'll just go look up one of those and watch it and it wasn't there either <laughs> uh, and I was like oh you- shit and the local video store doesn't have a copy how do you not have a fucking copy yeah, that fly. is a I weird mean, your thing to video not have a copy Yeah, of. it seems really odd. It wasn't even like not in. They just didn't have it. Uh, and so it was. I, I managed to, to find a copy somehow via the internet. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I was surprised how difficult it was just to be able to watch this fucking movie. I don't, I don't know like what's going on. you can rent it on Amazon. I don't know if you've ever done that before, rented something on Amazon. Uh, I have, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe can't, maybe can't I stream it was like just shit in the bed uh, last night. Uh, and not actually returning proper results. I don't know. It was weird. It was weird. Uh, I was worried that I was going to end up not being able to watch it. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were supposed to watch an actual fly. My, I watched my cats chase a fly around the house for like two hours last night. I watched Superfly. Yes. I, there was, I do not remember which sketch comedy the show's from. I, I saw this. Must This must have been by maybe 92, 93. It was some sketch comedy show that had like a Superfly parody that was just, you know, the movie Superfly. Uh, but with, you know, like a Brundle fly sort of thing in, you know, like the, the outfit, you know, tossing people around. And it was hilarious. I do not remember what sketch comedy show was on. And it's super hard to Google. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I ever, uh, I don't think I ever saw that. It does not ring a bell. I wanted to and, go back to, uh, to, to, because we started talking about the effects in this and, and the makeup and effects. Uh, this, this whole movie, like the second act of this movie is basically a really like, and I was just saying this on Metafilter last night, actually, because uh, Cronenberg came up in a, a thread about horror movie uh, VHS cassette art, uh, which we'll come back to that in a second. Because if you didn't see that thread, you should go check it I out. I did not. Uh, but uh, but uh, someone mentioned how, like, you know, the thing is, like, Cronenberg movies, like, 20 years later, you watch them, and they still are actually just as fucking creepy as the cover art, unlike so many of the great cover art for shitty horror movies. Um, and I was talking about how, like, it really struck me, having just watched this, how much, like, the second act of this film is really just, like, a long, slow-form masterclass in, like, the werewolf transformation sequence. Uh, but, you know, without a werewolf, obviously, in this case. Because it really is it's, – it's so many wonderful, like, subtle and then not-so-subtle movements along the, the makeup and uh, makeup effects stuff as it, it – because there's, like – what like seven or eight like discrete stages of the makeup they do uh, right uh, up on the final there's... melting off? 
I mean, do you consider Greasy Goldblum, like, right after he gets out of the machine, like, the day after, where he's just constantly sweat-drenched? Does that count? Nah, that doesn't really count. I mean, that's that's sort of establishing a baseline. Uh, but there's, well, there's, there's no interesting makeup there. That's just yeah. him greased up in his body double doing yeah. gymnastics. Well, there's first when he gets, I, like, mild I really, act. I, I really oh, like yeah. the fact that, like, he now has a proportional strength and knowledge of gymnastics <laughs> fundamentals. Of a house fly, like he—he's he's not like doing really obvious strength stuff. He's like, now I'm going to do a fucking Olympic routine because I know how to do that. Uh, that just yeah, yeah and, comes and with muscles. Fortunately, in his lab, he has a single parallel bar. Is—is is it just a bar? Because there's—it's not yeah, parallel yeah, to anything. Yeah, I think it's just a big bar. You know, um, that that has just enough clearance on it for him to swing all the way around and just like sort of walk on the ceiling a bit, and enough, you know, like it's reinforced enough for him to be able to hang on to it the whole time. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was. <laughs> I feel like they could have done something a little bit less silly there. I mean, I kind of get the sort of weird dreaminess of Gina Davis seeing that happening and sort of just watching in silence and them both sort of being aware from either side that this is a weird development. But uh, if this was a different movie, this would be just like a great training montage that entirely centers around him trying to do an upside down handstand on the wheelie chair without it falling out from under him and him tumbling to the floor. Yeah. Um, because I, that's what I was. I feel know, like that's, the, that's the, what I the to cultural say. currency of of like Mary Lou Retton uh, in 1986 may have influenced the fact that that's the way they went with that scene because it does. It definitely feels like a little bit like uh, Mary Lou Retton, uh, Olympic gymnastics, uh, maybe Rocky Balboa a little bit in sort of like the sort of cheese ball nature of like the yeah gym culture. We'll use gym culture gymnastic routines. Sort of like that whole weird mishmash that I get. Yeah, I mean, because like it was not- it was straight up gymnastics. Yeah. That is what he was demonstrating. Like, if I guess if this was a movie from today or five or ten it years ago, like- he'd just like run out onto the rooftops and start doing parkour. Yeah, or something. exactly. I was going to say like yeah, like like parkour probably, or maybe some vaguely Jackie Chan or sort of odd, uh, awkward but also impressive physical feats as he stumbles around and figures shit mm-hmm. out. Um, yeah. Anyway, but but I'm sorry, I totally interrupted you. You were. We were talking about the the series of effects for the transformation. Oh yeah, yeah. So there was yeah. So there was like mild acne, then more acne with like a couple of hairs in there, and then does it go straight from that to sort of like uh, really lumpy? No, like I, lumpy I, I, and walking I, on canes. Was no, there a midpoint there? His, his skin started getting pretty mottled before we got to that, and then there was the big jump. Is the thing like like his skin was getting mottled. And uh, and he was he had his crazy drunken uh, bringing of the the tawny tawny home. Um, at, the, at that point, he was starting to look a little bit rough, but it was basically yeah. makeup and, and yeah, acne. Uh, and then then we had the big jump of like four weeks go by as established in dialogue. I never yeah I never thought I would see something more awkward than this fade to black four weeks later thing. But him saying it's been four weeks since I last saw you was more awkward than that. Yeah it, yeah it was it was a little bit plotting. I mean it got the job done and it yeah, done yeah, quickly. It's... So okay fine let's just move on. But yeah it did feel a little bit like and uh, time passes. Uh, so yeah, and at that point we got him on the canes, and apparently he started doing the regurgitation thing, which I had forgotten that moment entirely. Oh and yeah, the drop. Yeah, yeah. So he's yeah he's he he's he's grabbing a, a a donut, and then he just he's talking to her, and he just barfs on it, and 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 then he just sort of like says this with this quiet, uh, embarrassed like self awareness. Oh, that's disgusting. Like not <laughs> not 
you know, no one's like, oh my God, that's disgusting. He's just like, oh, right, right, right. I just, yeah, I vomit on my, my, my food now. That's, I guess that's pretty gross. To, yeah, I mean, to once you need to do something in order to, you know, sustain a basic life function, I guess the fact that it's disgusting becomes a lot less uh, notable. And then, yeah, but, you know, no less, like, you know, less notable, but no less, you know, being aware of it's disgusting. So it's just like, oh, that's right. This thing I'm doing is gross. Um, before that, though, I just wanted to, so he starts eating a lot of sugar when he's, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and I think there's this one point where, you know, he, he calls uh, Gina Davis a total drag and he's just like, well, if you're not going to be, you know, part of the dynamic duo where this is like sort of slowly becoming an abusive relationship superhero movie, yep. um, he's just like, I'll go find somebody else. And he literally he goes to like pick up girls at a bar, but, you know, there's like this ominous music and he's like, you know, walking around downtown and like what, I mean, I don't know, was that supposed to be like, where does this movie? take place because that looked like you know sort of like a shit kicker biker trucker bar but this is clearly like a really urban place that i think you know they, they, they go to like the ethnic markets at some point um you know there's there's enough there's a place for a gala there's a warehouse district where he lives so i don't know where this takes place but he's you know he's walking down the road in like the seedy part of town and he just like gets one of these uh candy bars he's in silhouette and he starts eating it. and i think that's the most ominous eating of a candy bar i've ever seen in a movie <laughs> absolutely uh, oh, and yeah, he also breaks that trucker guy's wrist off in the arm wrestling match. Yeah, that that was very like newer Cronenberg, just like that shot of like the bone just I, poking I out like, of there. I feel like it was sort of in between because it felt a little bit cheeseball. Actually, it felt a little bit more like like I knew something was going to happen here with some sort of fleshy effect. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, not not to say it looked bad or anything, but at the same time, it felt a little bit like a hey, and then we'll do this awesome uh, guy's wrist breaks off with a compound fracture effect rather than like. Wow, that guy really did just get shot in the face, sort of feel of the later yeah. stuff. Okay, I could see. You know what it really reminded me of, though? In college, my freshman year of college, I took a, I had to take a chemistry course, and there was a lab component, so we had to watch a safety video. <laughs> um, and there was two things I remember very much from the safety video. The first has nothing to do with this. It was, you know, a, a boy, like a teenage boy, getting covered in some sort of corrosive chemical and then running to the, like, shower in the lab, the, the you know, emergency shower, and him just, like, standing sad and naked in the shower from, like, waist up, um, just looking very defeated. But the other thing was somebody breaks a uh, pipette, which is, um, like, one of those, like, little glass, uh, like, very thin glass tube, kind of like a straw. Yeah. I think that's what a pipette is. And they're just like, all right, you have to be careful because when it breaks, like, the edge of it that broke off is very dangerous. And here's what happens if you don't mind it. So you see, like, a shot of, like, a kid, you know, like, handling this. You see, you know, it turns to a shot of, like, his face or, or, or something. And then you see, like, a very, very fake-looking hand on the table and the other, like, a real hand. And you see, and it's supposed to be like a, oops, I dropped this thing in my hand and now it, like, you know, cut me. But he fucking jams that thing into the other hand. <laughs> and then blood starts spurting out the top of the pipette like a, uh, what do you call it, like an oil derrick. This is, it's not a safety video so much as a don't be an insane motherfucker video. It's like, well, we got to make this memorable. Um, <laughs> Have you ever seen that, like, German, uh, like, warehouse safety yes. video? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We should uh, try and f- remember to throw a link on that into the into the post on this because it's I mean it has nothing to do with any of this other than ridiculously graphic safety films but uh, but man <laughs> I love that fucking thing yeah uh, yeah yeah what 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 the hell. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, Brundle's transformation. So then, th- then we get you know four weeks later, and we get like lumpy vomit drop Brundle. Yeah, and he's walking on the canes and and, yeah. and vomiting on his food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, is that when his ear falls off? Is it during that scene? Yeah, yeah. Oops, my ear fell off. That was pretty funny. I that I there's no way that was not tongue in cheek when his like he's like oh crap my ear. Um, yeah, I feel like that whole scene, like it, 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 another, if Mel Brooks had a, a fingerprint on here, maybe that was like the scene where he showed up that is like, yeah, but w- what, if, what if his ear falls off? Uh, you know, it would have been great if there was like a waste up shot of like something going thud and then he looks down and like looks in his pants and sighs. <laughs> and then, and then Brooks is, is, you know, standing there in the back and like, yeah, okay, but, but, but let's do this. Then he says, friends, Romans, countrymen, and, and, and Cronenberg's like, no, Mel, no, no, I'm sorry, no, just stop. Mel Brooks writes that one down to do it six years later. <laughs> His idea, rejected idea pile. Um, yeah, and then after that, he becomes naked Brundle. He, like, stops wearing clothes and he gets real lumpy. Yeah. Um, and that's when he starts the, what do, what do you call it? The Seth Brundle Museum of Natural History, which is like his <laughs> cupboard full of things that fell off of him. Yep. Um, and then I, w- I think that was like the last one. And then we I, just did Brundle I, Fly. I, yeah, I think that was, that, that was pretty much it. And after that, we got the, the final transformation where uh, she accidentally tears his jaw off. Um, and this is, so, so here's a question. Uh, she she accidentally tears his jaw off in a moment of panic, and at that point, basically all of he just molts like 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 we get a nice shot of the jaw missing, and it's a nice gross shot, and the jaw's twitching on the floor, and his face is missing a jaw, and 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 then and then basically he he immediately like we get a bunch of close up shots of flesh peeling off of various much more fly like uh, yeah the eyeballs get squished yeah. Uh, <laughs> That that's a, that, that's cool. a great face to like. It, it was not the most convincing thing in the world, but it's just a, it, was, it was a fun fucking uh, shot. That's like, oh, that's so gross. Uh. Yeah. So here's a question: Was did he have two pairs of functioning eyes at that moment? Were the inside eyes looking through the outside eyes? See, I don't know. It's it's it's, it's hard for me to say, and I feel like I, I, I feel like part of the issue is. Um, it, it, it wasn't really clear again whether, whether he was like whether somehow tearing his jaw off triggered a molting process or if he was just like on the edge and just sort of vaguely holding it together and at that point he sort of just like freaked out a little bit and flexed and everything just suddenly because it really slewed off and I think I think the answer to this question is actually more along the lines of that's when we want to do that effect sequence and it was the last big yeah. transformation one so that's when we did it but yeah like trying to read it as something that actually happened in there it is weird that she pulls his jaw off and then suddenly all of this happens yeah I think that that's a lot easier to watch if you sort of watch it in it symbolically instead of this is what's actually happening on the screen yeah exactly which is true i think in general for the film the film works really well sort of doing these sort of character notes more than it works as a plausible scientific narrative obviously <laughs> um a lot of betamax video cameras yeah yeah back back um, when betamax still like had a had a shot i guess uh do you think they got a preferential rate for producing this movie on Betamax? <laughs> I don't know. Or for know. releasing, rather? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember exactly what the arc of the history of Betamax's fortunes was. Like, I don't know if in 86 it was still looking like it had a chance or not. 
my impression is that Sony locked things up pretty aggressively at a corporate level uh, with the VHS monopoly and had pretty pretty thoroughly put the, the, the nail in Betamax's coffin by the mid-'80s. But this is my vague recollection as someone who was not obviously paying attention to corporate media <laughs> politics uh, when I was playing with my Transformers. So I had a professor in college, a journalism professor, who was super mad that VHS won. Oh yeah, he clearly like, resented. Well, it, like, seems, it seems like Betamax was actually the better format, but 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 Sony forced the issue, and they they won out of sheer sort of spite. Like I've I've heard that from a number of people actually that like yeah, Betamax was a really it was the better media format at the time, but VHS is uh, is what we ended up with because because that's what happened. Uh, I want to I want to say something. This is something sort of terrible about me. I watched the the baboon inversion sequence, and uh, and obviously it's gross and it's terrible, and you're kind of like, holy shit, you just blew up a baboon, and that's fucked up and super gross and, and terrible. But then later, when they're testing out the steak, I got really sort of actually like, oh, you're going to ruin – that steak looks great. You're going <laughs> to fuck up that steak. And what the hell is wrong with me that like exploding a baboon – Okay, that's obviously bad, but that steak, man, you can't just I mean that's 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 like ten, twelve dollars a good steak. What yeah, are that you steak looked delicious. Uh so yeah, that's priorities. I, I guess that's what happens when I watch too many horror movies. Um He is really bad at like A B testing. <laughs> Here, try this steak. Now try this other steak that's definitely going to taste different yeah. because I, I teleported it. Yeah, he really should have done a a, a blind taste test there with her. That was kinda oh, that was hang dumb. on one sec. I think we might need to go to a commercial break. <laughs> Okay, and we are back. Did I say we had to go to a commercial message? Yes. That's hilarious. Um, Yeah, part of our ceiling, there's a leak upstairs, and we've been trying to get the super to take a look at it, and now, like, a bunch of plaster just came off. Nice. That's pretty sweet. Uh, Well, at least that means now they have to come take a look. (laughs) Jesus. The the, the 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 nice thing though is by not taking a look sooner there's there's more damage involved so you know that'll that'll cost more money to actually deal with properly. Uh, well, welcome back. Um, <laughs> I want to give a quick uh, shout out before I get uh, because it's rare that we have anything so appropriate uh, to to one of our listeners and nice fellow from Metafilter, uh, Shannon Hubble, aka Brundlefly, is oh, the yeah, username, yeah. which uh, which uh, you know here we are. Uh, with the with the brundle fly, um, I actually I have a Super Bowl party. Uh, well, it's a superb owl party because we're probably not going to actually pay any attention to the the football game, but we're going to get together and and hang out and stuff. Um, that I have to get to at some point, not too long from now. So so we can't go super long on this episode. Um, so I'm, I'm going to actually start referring to my notes now and thinking a little bit about uh, what other <laughs> I'm just going to continue slowly speaking about yes. What we should do <laughs> on uh, this podcast. So, so, so one, one thing uh, they 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 teleport the baboon and it comes along inside out and he's like, I don't understand why it doesn't work on you know organic matter on life forms. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but previously what he had shown off to Gina Davis was he 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 teleported her stocking. How would you know if a stocking ended up inside out? It'd still just be a stocking. So maybe everything had been coming through inside out, and he just everything he did was inanimate objects that had uh, a, essentially a topographical or topological symmetry to it. So he just had no idea that this was one line of code in his machine that just needed to be uh, it was needed to be a true instead of yeah. a false. He's he's got yeah he's got one line of code where he accidentally started counting an array from one instead of zero exactly you know and that got a baboon killed and his choice of his choice of tests just yeah. Uh, Gina Davis has this giant sort of like Twizzler plant sculpture. Yeah, in her what apartment. is that? What the fuck it's, was that? It's it like looked a, like a pair of lungs on like you know like a stylized series of like arteries, and it's a very, very shockingly different color from everything else in like this muted sort of autumn colored apartment. Yeah. And then there's that red thing. Um, yeah, what the hell? Yeah, I don't know what the hell that was. Uh, the keyboard on Brundle's computer is at the worst angle. Yeah. Like, that's an ergonomic fucking nightmare, man. Like, even when you have normal human fingers, you know, it's like, you're just terrible. And the guy has a piano. Obviously, he has to have some sense of, like, you know, you know, exercising your wrists and, and wrist strain and all that. So, so why he built that that way, I want to know. It's like he got some weird piece of, like, Russian uh, surplus. Surplus. <laughs> Bartok is actually a Russian organization is what's going on. Uh, those are all Russian baboons. Oh, uh, Poor baboons. That <laughs> uh, the, the the whole recurring dialogue thing with uh, learning about the flesh. You know, yeah, the, the first no time idea. that came up, I thought that was like maybe a little bit clever. It's like, oh, okay, well, it's, a, it's sort of an innuendo esque. We've got the parallel between the idea that his machine needs to know how to process flesh versus he is inexperienced in you know the flesh, and they definitely they they run with that. But yeah. they really run with it, and it. it, it, it it, it, it's it's hard to say. I don't know if I want to criticize Goldblum's later dialogue or say that it was doing exactly what it was supposed to do, which was to supposed to sound like sort of like up his own ass, insane, you know, rambling uh, of somebody who's coming unhinged. Because I mean, obviously that was supposed to be part of the character, but I, I didn't know whether to read the dialogue as trying to be like the clever sayings of someone who also happens to be coming unhinged, or just literally being him. I think it's unhinged. supposed to be that the clever sayings thing because he also goes off about plasma pools, which uh, just in like a series of almost like completely incoherent comments. Yeah, when he's like mad at Gina Davis for not wanting to go in the machine, he's just like drink deeply of the plasma pool or not at all. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I straight up do not have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. None buddy. of us know. Which I mean, I, I'm assuming that was that was pretty much the intent with the dialogue, which which works fine. It sort of sells the craziness, but uh, again, it's that weird. I'm fighting that urge to try and take some of the sciency stuff halfway seriously, and I think I just need to not do that. Uh, do you think the the scene where he's putting like what he when they're in the cafe and he's putting all that sugar into his coffee was that supposed to read as like a cocaine thing in the '80s? Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe there was a little bit of a semiotic uh, referentialism going on there. Uh, I, I did not occur to me at all, but then uh, I did relatively little cocaine in the eighties. So, um, oh, the line, the line. So uh, about the cock, uh, and and so so this is later on after uh, douchey dude has been stalking her in his uh, particle vanity plate car. Which, by the way, hopefully, eventually he buys an Econoline line. It'll be like a particle van, <laughs> particle van doing the things that a particle van can uh so he, he he like 
confronts her or she confronts him. I don't remember exactly how it played out in whatever the scene was, but she's like, oh, you're still uh, shacking up with this guy. And she said, no, he's really onto something huge. You know, there's something huge. And, and the guy says, what, his cock? And <laughs> Wait, really? I totally, yes. how did I miss that? Well, it's just a tiny little, again, it's just like a little pattery exchange. And the thing I love about it is that, like, this guy is totally a douche, but he's, I mean, and, and he's being like a shit heel to her, but at least he's being a shit heel in a way that doesn't involve also like gratuitously insulting the other guy's penis, but instead imagining that it must be a really great penis. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're just into it because that guy's got a, a, a real, real big old ding dong there. Is that what's going on? I'm going to imagine that the guy you're currently sleeping with has a giant cock. I'm imagining you, I'm, I'm imagining a giant. Yeah, so. I, yeah, I he's just, like I, surprisingly secure in his masculinity yeah. when displaying how insecure he is yeah, like, by I, just like not bashing Cold Plume at all. Yeah, I, I, I will give the guy credit. As much as he's a completely unlikable, misogynist, creepy jerk that I don't like, he did not seem to be like, you know, compensating for a lack of self-esteem at least. He, yeah. he definitely seemed to be just very self-assured about being an unlikable prick. So, you know, I guess I'll give him – and again, maybe that goes back to that sort of – that trope of the 80s like self-assured uh sort of douchey business executive kind of thing that that we were talking about i, I like the line where he was just like oh so you make things disappear i've got an, like i got like an assistant editor who's outlived his usefulness and i'm just like that's really fucking weird <laughs> thing to say <laughs> i need you to kill this man because i can't fire him yeah um uh, what, what, you, know, what? you see in his office, he had a very prominently displayed copy of Carl Sagan's Cosmos. Oh, I did not see that. Yeah, one of the upper shelves, it was just like a bunch of books, but then like orient, like leaning on the other books oriented toward the camera was, was a copy of Cosmos. Nice. Uh, let's see. There's a... Uh, Jeff, well, we, we, we talked about like the successful baboon thing Um and then Jeff Goldblum, after he has an argument with uh, with Gina Davis, he, he he does some drunken ranting to the baboon, and it's cute, but it's also it, it felt like weirdly cute for the film. Like like again, yeah. like the whole like I'm buddies with an animal, that whole shtick. It, it, it just sort of felt like too off. It felt like like going for a laugh and going. I, it was like sort of one of those like double double like uh, what do you call it like a. I don't remember what you call that kind of technique, but, um, you know, I think they did, they did it in Fargo, too, where you hear, like, you know, uh, what's his name? Oh, what's his name? William H. Macy being like, you know, there's there's been a horrible accident. Please send police. And then he comes into the camera, and he's clearly, like, practicing that line. So it was that same sort of thing where I think it was supposed to be that, you know, you're supposed to think he's talking to her, and then he's you're just talking to an empty chair. But then there's a monkey in the chair, a baboon in the chair. And it was like a double sort of yeah. one of those. Yeah. And... And then he gets into the machine, and the baboon immediately starts destroying the furniture. <laughs> yeah, I was like, fuck your couch. I'm going to tear open this red cushion. Why red? What are you thinking, Jeff? Come on. Yeah. Uh, maybe the monkey... May, okay, so maybe the baboon is actually a spy for Bartok. Like, and it's a high-risk undercover assignment, but, uh, but they know the monkey's up to it because the monkey owes them for its existence because it's a, it's a clone that just never would have existed at all without them. And so it's like, okay, I will take this mission, and if I survive, you owe me, you know, a hundred million bananas um, or whatever baboons like. I don't want to, you know. I think they eat meat. Monkeys. Do they? I think they're predators. Oh, nice. They got that, those spiky teeth, right? It was probably super upset about those steaks then. Like, yeah. he found out about that. He's like, motherfucker, I cannot believe you 
ruined those steaks. Also, my brother is <laughs> kind of gross. But those steaks, man, come on. Uh, I was really hoping he was going to reconfigure the teleporter to cook the steak. <laughs> that would have been that would been uh, a great thing to throw into like uh, an upbeat pop music montage. Would be like that as like you know trying to figure it out, frowning, not understanding, it's not working. Then come back later, it's like oh, it's starting to click, and then then finally him really satisfyingly uh, <laughs> sitting down and chewing into the steak and, and smiling into the like just off frame on the camera and that'd be like the end of the montage and then and then he'd be talking to gina davis actually and she makes a microwave joke uh when oh, he's yeah, talking about right. angela noted what is wrong with her microwave that she puts stuff <laughs> in it and it disappears like that's not that's not how it's supposed to work that's that's it's not, not supposed to microwave. smoke like that what do you think was the point of all of the dramatic fog in there? Do you think he just bought a fog machine to pipe in there for the dramatic part of it? He's just like, all right, I finally have to display this to the bar talk people. They don't want a shitty presentation, so I'm just going to get these two fog machines. <laughs> and as soon as the thing goes off, so do the fog machines. It floods the whole chamber with fog. I come out, and it's awesome instead of just, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 don't think, I don't think it's supposed to not be just a natural byproduct of the process in the text of the film. Like, I think in the, in the text of the film, smoke is... Just something that happens as a result of the uh, resynthesis process in the in the pod, uh, and of course he wires the exhaust back into the pod. Yes, uh, but but yeah, I have no idea why, other than obviously in 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 the real world it looks cool. Plus, it makes for a nice uh, lengthening of the moment whenever you're trying to figure out what's coming out and. You find out that it's something horrible and inverted, like a baboon, and then when you revisit it, it's no, it's a it's a smooth oily jeff goldblum this time and everything's okay and so yeah but yeah yeah it, it does seem a, a bit odd um i have another theory about the movie uh the hair on his back thing and, and mysteriously you know growing out the movie is actually fundamentally uh, about morgellons disease Oh. Uh, and and everything else is just a uh, distraction. It's actually about this delusional belief in inexplicable fibers uh, growing well, in your skin. Would it, would it? So would this movie be a take on the psychosomatic properties going insane, or would this movie be the Morgellons disease being real? I don't know. I'm not sure which. Uh, I, I haven't really thought this particular theory through any farther than saying it. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a Cronenberg movie. You wouldn't really have to pick. It could, you know, yeah, that could, that could yeah. be the open ending. Would, I mean, you know, did did he have some yeah. sort of incredible psychic body modification powers, or is there Morgellons disease? And then you know, Gina Davis looks at her hand like all the way at the end, and like there's a couple of sprouts sticking out of it. My God, yeah. Uh, the <laughs> she says uh, this was just a dumb. Uh, again, with the dumb jokes on the couch, but this is what happens when me and Angela sit down and watch uh, movies together. As you know, she she reports that uh, that the hairs weren't even human; uh, you yeah. know, they were insectile. And 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 Jeff Goldblum says that's silly, and Angela says no, that's sillier. Oh uh, yeah, God. yeah, I, I like it. Also, he smashes that fucking electric razor so hard. Yeah, he's upset. it explodes he, in the tub. Just like, yeah, I've never seen so many pieces of an electric razor all in Do you think place. there was, like, a guy just at a frame in the tub with, like, uh, like a little box full of, like, razor stuff? And he's just like, all right, three, two, one. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. It was, it, was, it was a great razor explosion, that's for sure. Yeah. Also, um, why on earth would you be like, wait, my fingernail came off. Let me be sure something's wrong. I'd better tear off a second fingernail. I did not... Like, 
Yeah. Ow, now my fingers hurt and I need to wear gloves. Well, it didn't seem like they even particularly hurt, is the it, like, like, or at least tearing off the fingernail didn't particularly hurt. But yeah, it, it seemed very weird to me that like I would have I would have been satisfied to be freaked out by my first finger and not torn off. But then again, I wasn't undergoing some sort of dramatic uh, genetically enhanced change into a hybrid brundle fly. So what do I know? Um, the hell was I going to say? Oh yeah, the part where he's just where she's just like, I think you're sick, and he's just like, Oh yeah, would a sick man do this? And then he starts like destroying one of the load bearing posts in his apartment. <laughs> yes, I think he would. <laughs> we don't know for sure it was load bearing though. It could have been decorative. Uh, in fact, it probably was decorative because it didn't. Uh, the ceiling didn't fall on him. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The, 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 we talked about the computer. I want to return to that briefly because the Bruno computer really does have – for one thing, it's got some really sweet graphics rendering routines. Like it, it apparently was able to do a lot of graphical and spatial analysis of the content inside the pods, which I guess it needs to if it's going to build yeah, things back together. Yeah, it could an image of the thing that was in the pod from the DNA. Yeah, which he never thought to check before. Like I, I feel like he would have looked a little bit sooner or had some sort of built-in error reporting process rather than having to figure it out once he's well into a – transformation triggered by the fusing of his genetic material without a house fly but again science putting it down i feel like if you're a scientist and the teleporter works with an inanimate object the first thing you should do is teleport to inanimate objects because <laughs> the way that they recombine will give you a really good hint as to how the machine is doing it yep. and if it's doing it right yep uh but yeah everything about that computer is like it's it's ridiculous. Uh, the inconsistency, the fact that like it has like apparently perfect voice recognition tech and 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 parsing technology, and then he just doesn't use that a bunch, yep. and he he slowly types stuff instead of saying it just for dramatic cinematic effect. Uh, there was the the scene where he was uh, questioning the computer. Oh no, where he was like typing in like the manifesto about like you know how to fix you know fix Brundlefly, reduce amount of fly DNA in Brundlefly, and like it was you know like he was typing in the screen. The typing did not remotely match what <laughs> was appearing on the screen. I don't know how he was doing that. And like at that point, he, you know, at least like two of his fingers in each hand were fused together too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I liked that too. Uh, I liked. I liked the overall arc of weird, like you know, emotional processing of the whole thing too. Like, like there's the there's the scene where she first comes sees him after the four weeks and he does the vomit and oh that's disgusting and and then and the next time she comes to visit him it's probably not a whole lot later, um, but he's 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 emotionally rebounded about the whole thing. He's crawling on the wall. He's like, Hey, look, you know, check it out. I, I'm getting kind of good at this, you know? And, and he's sort of getting to more of like a, a manic sort of like, Hey, the isn't, isn't life fucking weird sort of situation with it. And there's that little moment where he's hanging on the wall and he lifts up his shirt. And like, this is in the middle of a bunch of other talking. He's like, Oh, look at this. What's this? I don't know. You know, and it's, it's, it's the most gold he's been, you know, since, since uh, we last saw him, you know, like pre uh total fly gross out four week passage of time and it was just like it's just a dumb like like a wee little moment but i loved it the, the line delivery the physical acting there was was very nice do you think the brundle clone in jurassic park specifically went on that trip because he wanted to get like one of those dinosaurs into a prod with him and become a dinosaur man i i think he was actually interested specifically in the idea of the amber encased flies 
Like he wanted to he, – he's unaccountably drawn to the idea of fly DNA for reasons he can't even quite process because there was some neurological damage in the cloning process. And so he doesn't have a clear memory of his pre-generation uh, uh, Brundle stuff. But the fly specifically, sort of like you know, he heard that they were processing DNA from flies, and that that drew him into the project. That's what piqued his interest and got him to go along with uh, uh, the old fella. Um, but I think I think in the long run, what he would end up doing is, yeah, creating a a, a Brundle sore. Like that, Brundle I, I think sore. that's I think that's Jurassic Park Seven is where they'll reveal all this. I think Chris Pratt has to fight him. Yep, as uh, Bert Macklin. FBI. Uh, when she gets pregnant, uh, technically, that's you could say that's a brundle of joy. Yeah. I don't hear the word abortion in movies very often. Yeah, I know, was kind of surprised. That, that sort of struck like, like like they were really straight up. About the, and it's not like it's unprecedented or anything, but you know, it it, it did seem like. It was handled a little bit differently here than I feel like it would be today, uh, and and I don't know I don't know if like mid eighties was like a high point for relative acceptability and availability of abortions in the U S or not. I mean, it seems like because that, that was really something. There, I I I, I want to say it was sort of like a sea change in in the direction of uh, availability of legal abortion in the seventies in the u.s and so i guess it would sort of make sense that like that would have become a little bit more normalized by the the 80s and we've since had a bunch of weird political bullshit uh in the united states in the ensuing years but yeah i don't really have a super strong sense of what the sort of level of uh normalization or acceptability of that would have been but it is weird that we sort of really get a couple different abortion sequences in the film um yeah, and like the the one with the second one where he like you know Kool Aid Man's in there. Would I was wondering was the difficulty in what was happening just getting like an appointment for it? Period, or the fact that she wanted one in the middle of the night right the fuck now? Yeah, I feel like it was sort of like a private practice of a guy who is a friend or doctor of a douchey editor ex boyfriend, just sort of like. Hey, I need you to do this right now. And and yeah, the guy was like, I, I felt like he was just sort of like, really, really, you sure this is not a like, like this is sort of weird and fucked up in an imposition, dude. You know, that was more the feeling I got uh, than anything. Like like the idea that getting an abortion would not be particularly difficult, but uh, calling up your bro and say, hey, yeah, I need one of those uh, uh, midnight abortions. Uh, come over and and scrub up. Was was the difficulty? I liked. I, I, I okay. So when we when we first had the the, the first uh, abortion dream sequence, like she she says she's pregnant, and we go along and decide, okay, going to do it, go in, and then we've got the big scene with the goofy larva and the screaming and yeah. then the waking up. It was not clear to me at that point when she woke up whether the pregnancy was something that had actually happened or not. Yeah, I have no idea when that dream sequence. I mean, you you get an idea when they're definitely in the dream sequence, but I have no idea if you know at what was the exact starting point of it. Yeah, like like. By the time they're at the hospital, and it would have to be because uh, obviously she didn't go to the yeah. hospital. Then, but yeah, the, it's not clear where the transition point is. And so later, I wasn't I wasn't sure if we were going to come back to her still being pregnant until the film ended up like making it clear that oh no, she actually still is pregnant. Um, but then, so so when we actually came around, and I felt like it was like when she actually was 
at the office trying to get an abortion again that it became clear that that was happening. And I, I, I thought it worked pretty well that they had this sort of parallelism of that first dream sequence where like, like the, the dream sequence where it's like maybe this is really happening, maybe it's not. And I, I was thinking maybe it was a dream sequence actually fairly early on in there. I think by the time they were actually in the room, I was like, this might turn out to be a weird dream sequence where something – and then it became pretty clear it was because like, oh, there's more in there. Oh, what's – oh, my gosh. And yeah. So so when they get to the office the second time and they're going to definitely do the abortion this time and it's actually happening because it's not a dream, uh, it being interrupted by Brundle I thought was an interesting – uh, sort of way to reiterate the structure of going for it and then you know regretting it or being canceled somehow. Uh, yeah, I, I guess so, somehow as goofy as him leaping through the the wall was, uh, I think that worked better structurally than her having a crazy dream sequence about uh, uh, abortion that turns into the birth of a giant larva. If they had then followed up with her just in fact uneventfully getting an abortion, it would have been it would have fallen sort of flat for me because it just didn't feel like a film where meditating on that was really what they were going for. So I feel like I had more of a point of this in my head. And instead I'm just talking a lot about how I thought what they did was okay and what they didn't do wouldn't have been as good. But uh, there you go. That's, that's my <laughs> lengthy thoughts on, on that aspect of the film, I guess. Uh, yeah. What else? Uh, so okay, I, I think I blinked when douchey, uh, ex-boyfriend editor gets to Brundle's place. Uh, and, and I think I blinked and missed the part where he had had a suitcase that had a broken down shock in his head. Cause that's what that was, right? He showed up. Yeah. I, yeah, he, yeah, brought no, that he definitely yeah. at some point opens a suitcase with a shotgun and there was a bunch of other stuff in there. And, and I really should have like paused the movie or something to actually find out what was in there. Cause it was a bunch of like random shit. Yeah. Until it became clear that it was a shotgun. Gun. I thought maybe he yeah. was going to like trank the dude until I saw, yeah. no, he's definitely, that's definitely a shotgun with a couple uh, Yeah. I don't wait. I don't know if it was clear or maybe I just don't remember where it was he loaded the shotgun and then like next thing you know he's like in the middle of Brundle's lab. Yeah. No, he 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 took it there. He took it to the lab. He goes inside. I guess he, I just didn't catch him carrying the case. I only saw him opening it. I, I must have looked down to type something. Um, so yeah, I wasn't clear how it got there and if we saw him going and getting that somewhere else or not. But uh, yeah, he opens it up, snaps it together, uh, loads a couple shells in. Uh, I, I liked the effect. It was very Indiana Jones claymation uh, end of uh, of Raiders of the Lost Ark with the the hand melting and then the foot melting. Uh, it very yeah. much looked like the Nazis' faces melting. Yeah. Um. So presumably, more or less the the same. I don't know what wax sculpture melting probably is what they did there. Uh. But yeah, I don't know if it was intended to make specifically make me think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I, I enjoyed the. So I think it might have been. I, I think it was. It was definitely reminiscent of. Uh, this was after Videodrome, right? Yes, uh, I don't remember. I still haven't seen Videodrome. I still got to sit down and watch that. Yeah, Videodrome was eighty three, and there's oh. a very similar like horrible thing happens to a hand scene in in Videodrome. So I think that was him just like doing that, but a little more yeah. less gross. A little more or less gross. <laughs> well, good said. job. Good job with the English. Um, oh, I just found. Um, there's a David Cronenberg virtual exhibition somewhere, and it looks like the wall crawling. They did do it like that old school way where they build a rotating room. Yeah, yeah, no, that that it really looked that way to me. Uh, like he was not actually hanging on something that was pretty clear. So I figured they must have just built a set that uh, uh, they could get away with that on. Uh, I I 
I thought I and I think I touched on this a little bit earlier, but just to come back to it since we're like at the end of the movie and uh, this was at the end of the movie, but the you and me and the baby together, like he's going to like, they're all going to fuse into a single organism, which is, is balls out insanity. At this point, obviously yeah. Brundlefly has lost any, any shred of the sympathetic portion of the plot, you know, and he's just, let's do something crazy uh, because I'm desperate and weird and, and unhinged from humanity at this point, uh, which is fair. I kind of wish there'd been a little bit more build up to the thinking there, but yeah. I guess if he's just like losing it, then fine. Um, but yeah, it's sort of a weird sort of like Trinity thing there too, but like unreferenced, like there's, there's no apparent attempt to actually explicitly make some sort of like metaphysical reference there. It just happens to be, you know, three into one, uh, in a way that's not, not touched particularly. Um, the, the whole Brundlefly telepod thing that it felt like the computer got like, that's the driest smart ass computer since Hal basically. Yeah. Like at that point, the computer's just saying, Oh yeah, fuck you, buddy. I yeah, do you think, tell me too. I mean, why why doesn't why doesn't it merge the person with a telepod every time if the telepod is an acceptable thing to be merged yeah. with? Well, okay, it, it could be it could be a cautionary tale about computer programming, and he does reference earlier in the film once or twice that you know the computer only does you know what what you tell it to, not not what you want it to. And so, uh, as a programmer, sometimes I will say one of the things that can get you in trouble when you're writing some code is the assumptions that you left uh, unsaid in the computer program. Like, like, if you're like, well, I'm trying to manipulate this specific object, and I know, we obviously know that this object is going to be in this specific space and won't go outside of that, so we can just, like, take that as an assumption and then operate it and then we don't have to write any special code that says oh and also make sure it's not outside of that space because it never could be so he could have done the same thing and said like well I know for a fact obviously I'm only going to be transporting things that are inside the enclosed pod so it's not like I need to make a check to make sure it's the inside of the pod uh, it'll just automatically you know take care of itself because it's impossible that I'd be teleporting with the door open I mean why would I ever do that and so then when it happens, that's why it's an issue because the <laughs> program's like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever's in the area, that includes Brundlefly and, uh, oh, some of the telepod. I guess that's what we're doing this time. Okay. And so the computer just uh, runs with it and says, fine, I transported you. You're, you're, you're fused, motherfucker. And, uh, and then, Brundlepod yes. looked like something they had a lot of fun making. Yeah. <laughs> like especially like the trailing part of it with like all of the like tech stuff plugged into it that that looked like something that they they had a blast yeah. with. I wish we'd been able to see a little bit more of that actually. Um, it felt yeah. like that sort of ended fairly quickly and and with a little bit too much uh, uh, or, or or not enough sort of lingering on the ultimate apotheosis of the film's sort of body horror experiments. Uh, I mean, we still got to see some, but uh, yeah. And then and then Gina Davis blows his head off and cries. Roll credits. Which uh, <laughs> it, it felt it felt a little bit abrupt. I mean, I don't know what else they needed to do, and I'm, I guess I'm glad there wasn't like some five minute long epilogue with her talking to uh, douche bro McMelty limbs. But uh, but yeah, still it, it felt like they sort of like just sort of shammed the shutter, closed on that, and ro- rolled the credits. 
yeah, that I, I, it was, it was just sort of like, a, I, I don't know, I can't think of anything that would have actually been like a, a an ending that I would have wanted to see that wasn't just okay, movie's over. Yeah, I mean, it sort of ended like the way it begun, just like all right, that you know, here's the beginning, here's the end. That that's you know, you know what happened in both times. More than, no, nobody is really invested in any of these characters. Um, yeah, like we we did not get a chance to to really want to know what happens like in the long run to the people involved in this. Yeah. It was just like a horrifying event over, you know, a series of like a month or two in these people's lives that will irrevocably change them. But we're not entirely sure who these people are. Yeah. Yeah, which is fine because I think I think the the story works well enough as it's really about more of the strange experiences and some of the, you know, philosophical and, and, and metaphorical implications of all that than it is about, you know, specifically. Uh, you know, it makes me think, like, I want to see a movie where there's, like, some sort of a agency or, you know, like a government, like, cleanup thing that something horrible has already transpired and then they need to go in there and fix it and clean it up. And, like, that's the movie. Not the horrible thing, but, like, what happens when, like, a bunch of, like, people need to come in here and make sure, keep this out of the news, make sure nobody ever noticed it's happened, kill anybody who saw it, etc. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like, the whole movie, it's left vague exactly what happened. Happened. Yeah, I uh, I have never seen the Fly Two. Uh, I um, have not either. I might track it down and watch it just out of like pure curiosity. I'm certain, without knowing anything about it, that it's it's going to be bad. Uh, yeah, I presume it's going to be about uh, Brundle Junior. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I've, the tagline was like father, like son for that one. I remember uh, okay. it. Very clearly, I presume that they did not get Gina Davis or Jeff Goldblum back. Um, they got Eric Stoltz. Oh man! Uh, and hey, John Getz is back. Whoever John Getz was, status for yeah, yeah, yeah. So they got him. So we we'll see him. Hopefully, um, there doesn't seem to be Jeff Goldblum uncredited archive footage. Uh. <laughs> uh, Veronica. Uh, okay, the. Yeah, it's different people entirely. Um, and I see the cover is like a little kid standing in front of one of the patellopods. Uh, that sounds familiar. I feel like I remember seeing that. Uh, well, I, maybe I'll watch it sometime just because I'm curious what they do. It, but I assume it's going to be bad. And it's going to be exactly what we're talking about not needing is like finding out what happened to these people per se. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's nice to know it's out there. And it's nice to know that like I've never heard anything about it because it's like reassuring that I'm probably not missing anything. The scene of a character's head being crushed by an elevator aroused some controversy with the MPA. They originally gave this film an X rating. Oh, my. Huh. That was back when that was a threat. Yeah. <laughs> When's the last time you heard of, like, a movie being threatened with an X rating? Yeah. I, like, you know, I, and it's, it's a thing where, like, I don't know if it's that... Uh, people have gotten better at gaming the ratings accordingly or if the fact that people can just watch stuff online makes it less of an issue for less major blockbuster stuff because yeah it feels like like big blockbuster stuff just isn't even going to flirt with that sort of thing anymore and stuff that's a little bit i mean i I can't imagine whatever scene they're talking about was any more or less gruesome than anything that happens in like the theater cut of hostel or saw yeah well and that's that's an interesting thing you know it's like uh this is this is again talking about comments i made on metafilter the other day but really you'll have to go read that thread about the vhs uh cover art 
because uh, it's got a bunch of fun stories of people talking about basically being traumatized as a kid and or having expectations that are unreasonable um, based on cover art. And that was one of my comments was I have this relationship that's basically the same relationship with uh, VHS covers for horror movies as I do with uh, album art for heavy metal albums. Uh, which is I saw all these things as a kid when I wasn't able to watch or listen to this stuff, really. Uh, and I imagined that, you know, the inside content of the stuff was as badass as whatever was on the cover. And so every horror movie, like House, I always thought House must have been one of the coolest fucking scary movies ever. It was a movie <laughs> about, like, a haunted, rotting hand that killed people. Uh, but actually, it was the guy from Greatest American Heroes having kind of a... Uh, a PTSD meltdown while being ghost bothered by Bull from Night Court. You know, it is, <laughs> it is not a film that I remember being at any moment concerned. That sounds a lot better than you are saying it is. Well, I think I think if you're if you're willing to watch a relatively goofy psychological horror movie from the 80s, it's not necessarily a bad movie. Like I really can't even tell you one way or the other. I just know I was massively disappointed when I saw it because it was not a spooky, haunted, you know, zombie hand killing people, which is what the cover art looks like. You know, it's got this great, wonderful painting of a rotting hand ringing a doorbell and the, and the tagline, I think, ding dong, you're dead. Yep. I remember that. Yeah. The movie does not live up to that. Whatever else is going on with it. It's not that. And, and, you know, so much of the art for these things was like someone came up with a really great, clever, misleading, completely non-representative bit of art for the cover of a not very good or not very scary you know, horror film. Uh, and heavy metal stuff was the same way. Like, there's all these fucking zombies and, and torn flesh and evil robots, satanic symbols and whatnot on like, you know, Slayer, Iron Maid and so on. Yep. And as a kid, you know... I, I imagine this must be really, really appropriately freaky music. And, you know, later on, you know, I started listening to more music in, in high school and started hearing more contemporary stuff that seemed like relatively, you know, heavy or industrial or whatnot. And, you know, you listen to like Rammstein, you know, and, and that, that, that's, that's some nice abrasive pop music as far as that goes. And I'd always sort of assumed that like heavy metal was like that but raw. Like, you know, like I, I imagine like, okay, Rammstein's what they're doing these days maybe. Uh, you know, or, or Metallica to some extent, you know, but you know, there there must be this Ur metal that was like, you know, more raw and industrial and just like a musical almost, and just like the heaviest, scariest music you've ever heard. And then you know, I eventually started hearing some of it, and like encountered the concept of like hair metal and so on, and realized no, actually, people are writing kind of pop music, but they played their guitars louder than they necessarily had in like the '60s. And and it, it was such a it was such a letdown. Like and now I can sort of look at that and more appreciate it musically as okay. Well, there was some self awareness here. There was some goofiness here. And yeah, you know, there's no reason to assume that horror movies were were edgier and that music was edgier earlier on than whatever the edgiest stuff I've seen contemporarily. Uh, but I didn't get that as a kid, and so it was such a weird letdown when I first started realizing that my imagination had done so much better job with these albums and with these <laughs> movies in the abstract than the actual, you know, content of the the media. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, like the concept of like a horror movie sequel did not really occur to me as like an inherently like you know downhill slope. Yeah. And I remember just being in the video store, and I would you know hang out you know the whole 
VHS is one my mom picked out a movie to watch, and then, you know, like, I'd get a movie, but usually not from the horror section. I just wanted to look at the boxes. Yeah. Um, but what happened was that, um, yeah, like, once in a while, I would get a horror movie, and I'd be like, all right, I finally want to watch one of these Puppet Master movies, but I have so many to choose from, and they all look so good. <laughs> and then I would get, like, you know, Puppet Master 6. I'm just like, ah, I, you know, I can't be that hard to enter into it, and I want to see these monsters kill somebody. It was just garbage movie um it's like no it's i think the 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 ratio to coolness of cover of horror movie to shittiness of horror movie is a you know you could you you can have an equation for it as far as sequels are concerned yeah well the cost and difficulty of producing a really great piece of cover art is so much lower than the the cost and difficulty of doing an actual like feature like film that's awesome so yeah Anyway, uh, <laughs> I think that's about it uh, for me on, on, on notes on, on this particular film. Yeah, uh, I think I've I get to my I've, super uh, owl thing. So <laughs> I think I've exhausted everything. They they did like a help me help me line, which I, I mentioned was probably a reference to the Vincent Price movie. Um, yeah, I mean that 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 was basically my side. I I enjoyed this movie. I'm glad we got through this podcast without bashing it too much because we occasionally do that with with movies that we enjoy but find a lot of faults with. And yeah, I think this yeah, I managed think to successfully restrain ourselves. I think if I'd come at this movie, in, you know, from the wrong direction, I could have complained a lot more about like little things about it. But 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 uh, I really I I just genuinely enjoyed watching it. Like it was great watching it again. The uh, the datedness of some of the '80s stuff was really not that big of a distraction, even if it was hard not to constantly see Gina Davis's hair uh, filling the frame. Yeah, I'm wondering. It's like are movies from like 2009 or you know 2014 going to look as dated in 30 years? Because yeah. I can't place what about them will make them look so dated. Yeah, I, I really don't know. I I, I think. Uh, it's possible that the eighties actually was just particularly notable for, uh, movies. And it may be just like the movies where someone really didn't try and de-emphasize the eighties of some of the fashion are the ones that we remember is like, Oh man, that's so eighties. And then other stuff may have been made that like someone went, well, let's, let's just tone it down a little bit and stay away from the, the fatty hair, uh, and, and stick to something that's a little bit more neutral. And then you just don't particularly notice it. I mean, yeah. It'd be interesting to to sort yeah, I'm of trying look to more detail think of that. stuff that's like set contemporarily, but has like really weird Goodfellas, like the the contemporarily, well, not contemporarily, but like the the scenes in Goodfellas that were set closer, like that weren't in too far flashback. You know, when Henry yeah. Hill and his wife finally married, and you know, like when they started getting into trouble. Those scenes, you know, the the Doctor Zoidberg claw collar that they all had was just, you know, it, it might as well be a science fiction movie yeah. with that fucking collar. <laughs> you know, everybody might as well be wearing, like, a Robin Hood hat or, or you know, something like that because it was just that shockingly outdated or just, you well, know, here, not here, even in play anymore. Here's what we'll do. In, in 30 years, uh, we'll do our 4,000th episode uh, and we'll 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 take a look at some stuff released in the uh, you know 2012 to 2015 era, yeah. and go looking for for datedness tied to this specific time period, and, and see if if that compares well to our reactions now to this 1986. Film. We will be in our 60s. We will be having trouble remembering what happened or how people dressed. <laughs> There'll be a lot of rambling. A, um, oh, no. In the 60s, there will be a lot of rambling on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> well, all right. Okay, we'll, yeah, we should uh, yeah, we'll, um, we'll wrap this up. Uh, we'll figure out what we'll... If you're 
if you're still listening, by the way, and you're in or around New York, uh, BAM, the uh, Brooklyn uh, AM, is having a... <laughs> They're having a John Carpenter retrospective through February or early February. I think like the first two weeks of February. Um, so they're having, I think, possibly all of his movies because I definitely saw some movies of his that nobody likes on there. Like what is it, Dracula two thousand or something, or Vampires or yeah, Vampires. That was John Carpenter's Vampires. Yeah, I've never seen. Um, that. Yeah, and I think the thing is on a weekend, so I'm probably going to go see it because I just that'd be fun. It's that'd been be a fun long time since I've. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm. I, I really. I enjoy seeing movies with with uh, with a crowd sometimes, um, and that that seems like a pretty good one. I, I just you know maybe the people screaming and stuff. I've never been to a horror movie like in a theater where people screamed ever. Yeah, yeah. I think probably, you know I, I I saw the ring in the theater, and I, I think there was some audience yelping at a couple of the freaky moments in there. Oh, I think there is. Okay, yeah, we probably should. Uh, okay, yeah, and like look us up on Facebook, Tumblr. Yep. Um, I think it was somebody from Facebook that suggested we do a Cronenberg movie. It was uh, something Daniel Kessler, David Kessler, uh, some, something like that. I'm so bad with names when I'm not looking at them. Yeah, sure, yes. I, some, uh, some, some, yeah. Thought, some thoughtful listener encouraged us to do something where David Cronenberg wasn't just in it as an actor, <laughs> which I think was a good call. Martin Kessler. Thanks, Martin. Ah. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, so we definitely enjoy getting suggestions to movies that we should do. So uh, and we feel managed, free to we bring them up. put up a little uh, heads up this time that this was the one coming up a couple days early. So you know, oh, yeah. a, uh, we'll try and do that more consistently too. Someone had asked about doing a little bit more of a quick recap at the beginning of films, which I totally forgot until the end here. So <laughs> too late, obviously. But it, it, it's not a maybe bad we'll idea. remember next time. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like when we first started the podcast, we were doing a lot of. Uh, Recapping really detailed recaps, right? which is like maybe not so great, but yeah, doing a quick like two minute summary uh, is probably not a bad idea for those of you who haven't seen the film to have a little bit more context on where the various bits would. Pull do you do a quick from. one with this one? Man meets lady, man ruins steak, man's skin falls off. Yeah, yeah that's basically the film. Uh, also oiled up Jeff Goldblum, so you know, <laughs> oiled up Jeff Goldblum gymnastics. 